The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. I don't know what it is. I don't, you know, and then when this FTX thing happened, I'm like, of course. Yeah. Of course, you fucking scumbags. I've become obsessed with that shit, man. Oh, my God. I just like, because I'm already imagining, like, the fucking, how many people are writing that fucking screenplay right now? Are we, are we up running? <laughs> let's, let's go. We're rolling good. Oh. Let's talk about this. Yeah, I'm I'm fascinated by it. I, I'm fascinated by scammers. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, uh, I am I knew a lot of uh, scammers in my pool hall days. I knew a lot of, uh, I knew a guy that was uh, one of the first guys that ever was involved in credit card fraud. Hmm. Back in like the early '80s, his name was International Sal. He was a fucking character, like a real character. Sal, Sal, mm. International Sal. That's what they called him, because he was uh, he was like a like a mob guy, essentially. And what they would do is they would go to grocery store or um, department stores rather. And you know they had those carbons when you would in the old days with credit cards. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, they would take those carbons, and someone would sell him the carbons, and then they would print copies. Of credit cards and then they would buy a bunch of shit and then they oh. would sell that shit and they would come to him with bags of money to the pool <laughs> hall and then <laughs> That's a good idea. and he would blow it all <laughs> he would blow it all it's it's like we always talked about it. it's like it's he he had dirty money and he couldn't keep it it's like he was he couldn't win like he could not win like, if the nine ball was four inches in front of the hole, he would find a way to dog it. Oh, like the cosmos knew that the money was no mm-hmm. good. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was something. It was like, is it in his head? <laughs> he had the worst case of buck fever I've ever seen in my fucking life. <laughs> it was just like... Yeah, it's like, he's got like the devil and the angel on his shoulders, and the angels giving him, like the angels give him advice, you yeah. know, so he loses his money. <laughs> and he was a good guy. He was a good guy. He just his he just came from a life of crime, but he was a good guy. It's weird. Like, you know, I don't know what his last name was because there's a we're we're looking up people with our last name and we found a Sal Ranella in Joliet prison. And I just I liked how much it sounded like Sal Manella, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, he died of cancer a few years back, and uh, actually, a friend of mine's mom. Who worked in, um, you know, like a, I guess it's a hospice when they, they take care of people in their, their dying days. Yeah. And he came into there, and uh, my friend contacted me. He goes, guess who's in uh, the hospice? It's International Sal. I'm like, oh. No. Well, so it's, it's, it's sad when he's a good guy. He, I mean, I say he's a good guy. I obviously, he did terrible things. Robbed those fucking credit card companies blind. Yeah. Made millions of dollars. But he was a good guy. Like, he was always friendly. He was always a good guy. I had a friend get her credit card stolen recently, and they bought a bunch of stuff, electronics from Best Buy, and then made a charitable donation. <laughs> <laughs> like, that'll cover it. They, they felt bad and made a charitable donation. Well, some people feel like if you steal- <laughs> like a feed the, you know, it was like feed the children or something, you know? <laughs> They're like, this will clean it out. <laughs> That's the shows you that like total baby sociopath. <laughs> Some people just, you know, they just do it, but they're like, well, there's got to be a way to, like, balance this out. Did you hear the Target lost, what was it, Jamie, like $400 million last year from looting? $400 million. Really? Yeah, because all these people in the last year or so, just during the pandemic, people were, like, stealing shit. You know, it became wow. a thing, like, in, in some states. I had no idea it was that bad. It's bad. In some states, they've closed down all the Walgreens. They've closed down all these different, because... 
they made a law where if you steal less than $900 worth of stuff, they can't even arrest you. They don't even do anything about it. So people would just walk in. Have you ever seen those videos? No. Well, I've seen the videos. I didn't know about. I didn't know about them being prompted by. I didn't know that that activity being inspired by particular rules as much as just like a breakdown of. You know, I don't know, like a breakdown of desire, like for a while, like a desire to to engage with certain kinds of law breaking. Well, it was there was that, and then there was also I think after the George and during the George Floyd protest, organized retail crime has driven four hundred million dollars in extra profit loss this year wow. at Target. That is crazy. Organized, um, you know, there was during the George Floyd protest, there was so many so much looting. I don't know if you saw the the stuff in New York; it was crazy. Oh, for sure, where yeah. the cops were standing by, they were just standing there watching them smash windows and run into stores. And that was that de Blasio guy, the like, super leftist yep, mayor yep. of New York, just kind of allowed it all to happen. And th- it's like it's based apparently on an old theory about rioting where you just let them burn it out of their system, <laughs> you know, like, have a temper tantrum. <laughs> I think that so much is there's a lot of uh, this isn't just, you know, I didn't make this up, but there's a lot of governance by theory, you know going on yeah. where it's like it's sort of in you know a lot of people are left to be like Bahamut that doesn't make any sense <laughs> you know but, well you got to think who these a, people it's are. a theory though right who these people are that want to be mayors and want to be governors like they're, they're a bunch of loony people for the most mm-hmm. part there's not a lot of competition there's not a lot of like super rational really like well-educated super successful in business people that wind up becoming governors and mayors yeah. which is probably what you would need to be you need to be someone who's like really good at organizing business. And there was a guy that was running in New York, and apparently he got really close. And he was ahead in the race for a while, but then he wound up losing to some woman who's uh, the new mayor of Los Angeles. Was it Karen Bass? So I just heard a guy saying that that's the politicians that are going to win now. He was a strategist, a Republican strategist, and he was saying that the his prediction was it was going to be like the technocrats. Mm. That people were getting, I don't know where he's getting this from, but it made me feel optimistic that people are getting more interested in like um, that. That his view of the midterms is that voters are getting interested in in like pragmatic problem solving again, mm. and not ideology. Well, once ideology we'll comes crashing back on you and falls apart, and your business collapses, and that's what you're seeing with a lot of people. It's like just the, the just the reality facing them, mm-hmm. where their ideology is not sustainable. And then they're like, Jesus Christ! Like I'm, I've lost everything here. We got to get somebody who's like some fucking hard nosed business person. Yep, it's gonna get everything running correctly. I had an interesting thing happening right here in Austin the other day. Speaking of law enforcement, I. Uh, I was down here for a couple of days with my, it was my daughter's birthday. So my wife, and my daughter came down with me and we spent a couple of days just knocking around town and we went down to check out those bats oh. that, that come out of the yeah. what, Congress bridge. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. It's cool. It's wild. We're walking down there and I become aware we're going down the sidewalk and I become aware of like all this honking and yelling and shit at an intersection. And as I'm, I'm walking up to a car and there's a woman like honking and yelling and she's pointing into the car and I go and realize this guy like uh, I thought he had a heart attack just keeled over the steering wheel in the intersection okay so he had his back window down like halfway down for whatever reason 
and I'm in there and I got him by the shoulder and I'm trying to shake him awake. Okay. And I think he's had a heart attack or died. I don't know what's going on. I'm yelling at my wife, call 911. Um, I'm trying to get his door open, but his doors are locked. And I'm trying to reach up to hit the unlock button because the thing's only half open. And me yelling and saying, you all right, you all right? He perks up (laughs) and, like, takes stock of the situation and just goes off through the green light. So now I feel like I'm, like, uh, not complicit, but I feel like it's, like, become my responsibility that he's going to, I don't know, he's going to die, kill somebody. I call 911. My wife had already called 911. She got sick of waiting on hold and gave me the phone. She went in to try to find, she had left my daughter's swimsuit somewhere. She went to try to find my daughter's swimsuit. I waited, waited, waited. She came out. I was still on hold, and I was like, ah, he's gone now. It's just someone else's problem. Yeah, I've never had that happen to me. I'm not like a habitual 911 dialer. But... 911 is uh, <laughs> apparently in a lot of places. It's not that good anymore. <laughs> I was, I mean, I was shocked. <laughs> How long did it take? How long was she on hold for? Man, I want to say 10 minutes, but I don't, I don't know. I don't want to exact. I wasn't really paying it. I was kind of pre. I, I wasn't really watching him. I was a little bit preoccupied, but like a long time. You know, it's <laughs> depressing. It's so depressing. There's never been a time in my life where I felt like things have broken down as much as they have over the last three years. Yeah, well, just scary. Like, what the fuck? Like, and the thing about things breaking down is, boy, they can break down quick, but building them back up again, that takes a long time. Yeah, that takes a long time. You'll be able to see that play out in Ukraine at some point in time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, those fucking buildings that are destroyed oh, too. Like, how do they rebuild? They have cities that are just completely leveled. No, how do they even build that back up? In the back of my head, looking at them, I was like, man, how do you? Yeah, how do you? You know, I don't know. It's decades, decades, decades. and decades and decades, decades and decades. Yeah, it's depressing, and you know, our only hope is that it doesn't get worse. That's your only hope at this point in time. It's just like somehow or another it doesn't continue to decelerate or accelerate rather. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I'm reading a terrible book about this too. <laughs> what is I'm this? I'm in the middle of this book called The Kill Chain. It's all about uh, how China has uh, a technological superiority over America because our systems don't communicate with each other and we don't have machine learning with all our military systems and how far behind they are in terms of uh, like what's available in terms and, and you know, like what they have available in terms of like artificial and they're, they're comparing right now like computers now that can beat people in the game go which i don't really understand but apparently it's very sophisticated and also starcraft 2 which is a very complicated game and now computers are just wiping out the best players in the world and not making any mistakes and and how that kind of computer learning is being applied in China, but it's not being applied in America. Hmm. And that all of our systems are kind of antiquated and that we update hardware first and then software. So like we don't have, like, you know, your phone is constantly upgrading. They're comparing that. Like you're, you're with it, with, when, and when they learn new things and they find exploits and they patch them up, you get an update on your phone. Yeah. They don't have that. So it's like they, they're really fucked. In terms of the also the military branches' ability to communicate with other military branches, they essentially have to call each other. It's like it's not good. It's What's not, the book? It's called the Kill Chain. Huh. It's not good. 
the kill chain is a, it refers to systems like you know like that there these systems have to work in conjunction with each other in order to be successful sure yeah and that this 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 thesis of this book is that it's not they don't work together at all and that it's very bad and that if we do wind up in some sort of a real large international conflict we're we're kind of fucked hmm. it's very depressing and how china has been working like towards this goal for a long time and they have the advantage of their government completely controls all of their businesses so the businesses only work within the interest of the chinese government yeah more depression no sounds like i'm reading a book called um rising wolf the white blackfoot <laughs> what is that <laughs> it's i first uh oh it's a book about this kid it's a book about this kid in the 1700s that uh, I'm sorry, 1800s, that came out with the Hudson Bay Company up into the vicinity of Calgary and then was assigned out to the Blackfeet. And the Blackfeet took him south, and he and he just wrote his chronicles, spending a bunch of time with the Blackfeet. Oh, wow. Oh, it's fascinating, dude. And before I read it, I contacted our mutual friend Dan Flores to see if he was on the up and up, because I've read historic accounts that later Dan would be like, yeah, that guy played a little fast and loose with the with the reality. Mm. But he was saying that this guy checks out, like his his account is regarded by historians to be fairly accurate. Wouldn't that be one of the, there it is right there. Wow, look at these guys. Well, that's him. Could you imagine living back then, man? No, it's, it's just amazing. I mean, he, he experienced... He experienced amazing stuff. I don't know. I, it's like, you know, reading books about the past versus the future. I don't think I've ever read a single book. I don't think I've ever read a single nonfiction book about the future. Really? Ever. I don't think I ever have. Yeah. Only about the past. They I, don't yeah. know. I mean, it's all speculation. A nonfiction book about the future is like, it could be proved completely full of shit in just a couple of years. Yeah, it probably feels pretty dicey writing in books. <laughs> Yeah, by the time you publish it, there's probably something comes out that completely disproves your whole idea. Yeah, no, it's uh, I don't know. I, f I find more comfort, and uh, I, I, but I don't know if I read for comfort. But yeah, I, I've I've never read a book about like like what you're looking at, like uh, um, you know, I like I just like books about shit that are I like books about shit that already happened. Like after an election, I like reading people. After an election, I like reading books about where people analyze what happened. Yeah, I would never read a book that came out right now that was telling me what was going to happen at the next election. Right, right. How the fuck could they know? Yeah, you know, it's yeah. So it's yeah. like once it all happens, I like to look at it. The elections are fascinating to me because I don't particularly have an opinion about election fraud, but I do have an opinion on fraud, and it always exists. Mm -hmm. There's always been people that are full of shit that are manipulating things and saying that they're not, and we're finding this out now with Twitter. Now that Elon Musk purchased Twitter mm -hmm. and he's finding that, you know, they, they literally had FBI people embedded in Twitter that were holding back information from him. Like there was a guy that he fired that was an FBI guy that worked for the FBI at one point in time and now was one of the head guys at Twitter and was withholding information from him while he was trying to release information about allegedly, I should say allegedly, so I don't get in trouble here with this, but what, the, 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 what he was saying essentially is this person was a bottleneck 
to releasing this data yeah. where they were trying to find out like why did President Trump get banned? You know what was going on in terms of shadow banning conservative people and how much how much coordination was going on inside the company to try to suppress certain ideologies oh, yeah, and yeah. magnify other ones. And it's pretty stunning. I'd be curious. Uh, I'm curious how much of that stuff's in there, how hard it is to find, and how much people were just being more discreet with text messages and phone calls. Yeah, there's probably a lot of that. But, you know, I think with corporations, they tend to do things on Slack, you know, that, that they have an internal messaging oh, system. Oh, yeah, I know Slack, yeah. So I don't I, use it, but I know about it. I think yeah. I think it's all recorded, unfortunately. I'm the, only person in, I'm the only person in my company that doesn't use Slack. Drives everybody crazy. <laughs> I'm just like, I feel like there's like so many ways to get a hold of me. I don't need like a fourth one. Yeah. Like you email me, you call me, you text me, now I got to have another one. Knock on your door. <laughs> I didn't even want to count that. <laughs> Yeah, it's like holy shit! If man. I ever get to the point where this podcast has Slack, I'm gonna sell you it. You and Jamie can Slack all day. I'm gonna sell it to AI. I'm gonna because they can already do. They've they did an AI interview with me and Steve Jobs. I never met Steve Jobs, so they 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 put together a podcast with me and Steve Jobs. Oh yeah, I heard about that. It's fucking wild because you would you listen to it and you'd believe it's true. Well, it's too bad that FTX collapsed because he was gonna use his money to battle AI. He wanted to, you know, like his whole deal, the, the what's it called, effective altruism? Yeah. Part of his crusade when he got to dishing out the, you know, he was going to get around to dishing out the billions of dollars to charity and he was going to battle pandemics and, and AI. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm. So now that that funding dried up. <laughs> I guess AI is coming for us after all. The funding of pandemics, the issue with that is that they, they fund research and some of that research is gain of function research. And that's what they think led us into this whole fucking thing in the first place. And, you know, the government, well, Fauci Fauci most certainly didn't tell the truth about it. And uh, that's why Elon made a tweet yesterday that his pronouns are prosecute Fauci. And everybody's going nuts. Well, I saw, I don't, you know, I don't, uh, it's funny, you can, I can follow his, I can follow his Twitter account by just reading the news. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, on one hand, like. Like every tweet he makes becomes an article in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, it's amazing. It's pretty crazy. You can take the, like X number of characters and then basically say something and then have professional journalists turn it into eight hundred to a thousand word news pieces. Yeah, yeah. It's It'd pretty be great crazy. to have that be the, your reality for him. Just anybody. If I could be like, hey, you know, here's the thing I think, and then and then someone would translate it into this really like well thought article with pros and cons and quotes and shit you know what i mean it's like yeah. an amazing machine so i don't i don't i'm like i'm very much in tune with everything he tweets without ever reading the tweets mm. you, know, you know this idea like there's like that an object in its shadow his tweets are an object but they make a shadow do you follow me mm-hmm. and i'm like looking at the shit like i'm just like looking at the shadow all the time right it's incredible right. power yeah to have. It, it's also an industry, right? Because these people need things to write about. And all you have to do is like just you, you always have resource. Mm-hmm. You just go to his shit and immediately you can write a story. Yeah. Like if you don't know what, what am I going to write about today? Ukraine is kind of what's the same old, same old. I need something juicy. I've only I've had that happen a couple times and I had it happen recently where I was uh, I went duck hunting with Cole Wetzel, who's a musician. And and so I had a thing on Instagram where I was with Co, 
and he had a thing on Instagram. And then the next day we saw a big article about our, it was an article about our having hunted as though there was someone that was there. It was like mm. a reported piece based off pictures and the captions. Whoa. And they wrote like a reported piece. I mean, this has happened to you 10 times a day. Oh, yeah, it happens a lot. <laughs> so. Yeah, I hear about things. And I, I, I don't read anything about me, but I hear about things mm-hmm. from other people. Like, what's going on with that thing? You know, what yeah. are you talking about? Like, yeah, I read an article that, you know, people are upset because of this and that. And I'm like, oh. I'm a sucker for Joe Rogan stories. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I know you people yeah. send them to me. <laughs> it's so strange. It's a strange, strange time. Oh, What's, I feel bad. I don't know. Maybe that's not the word, man. I feel bad. Is it bad? I don't know. Maybe I feel bad for you the way that shit happens. Because you kind of want to, you know, that shit will happen and I'll kind of, I don't know who to tell, you know. You, you kind of want to be like, man, you got it all wrong, man. <laughs> well, you don't know who to talk to. Well, it, it's it's weird because on one hand, it strengthens the group of people that know me and know know the podcast and listen to the podcast. Mm-hmm. But you get all these people that just get like a soundbite or get an article or sure. the, the title of the article. And that's like, I'm guilty of that. I read titles of articles and then that's, I send them to my wife all the time. She's like, did you read it? I go, no. She goes, that's not really what it's all about. I'm like, yeah, but the title's fucking juicy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's what goes on today. So. I was surprised by you a couple times when um, uh, that you don't like to even. It's a little bit fatalistic on your part. You don't even want to participate in journalism about you. That's fatalistic. Yeah, because it's like you could. Do you know what I mean? Even if you could get that one little quote in there, mm, it's not worth it. Yeah, but you don't even. No. It's not, well, first of all, for your mental health, it's not good. It's not good to think about yourself. I don't think that's very healthy. Certainly, it's not good to think about other people's opinions of yourself. Mm -hmm. I think that you, you, then you're farming off your own opinions to other folks and letting them decide. Yeah, but to have a, and and I'll use the word, when I use the word credentialed, I don't mean flawless, but I mean like a somewhat vetted news organization. Is prepare okay. <laughs> okay. So it's even the New York Times is sketchy today. It is. Everybody is. Everybody's Everybody, sketchy. Okay. Uh, here, let me let me let me take a break from my my advice. Let me take an adva- <laughs> a break from the vi- advice I'm trying to give you to tell the story I heard the other day on NPR. This is like this like I have you know. So I'll argue with I was arguing with Giannis one day about we we're talking about something and he was trying to argue that. Like, of bias, there's, like, the least amount of bias here, there, wherever, right? Mm-hmm. And he had cited NPR as being, he felt, lower on bias than many others. But the other day I heard a story where they're talking about climate change activists destroying famous works of art. Okay? Yeah. And they had, they sort of, like, gave a soft condemnation of the practice, but then said, it just goes to show how artwork remains relevant and part of the dialogue. Oh, God. And I was like, I'm trying to imagine if QAnon people were sabotaging major works of art, what the coverage would be like. Yes, that's a good point. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, yeah. It was, And it was just, they, I, I don't even think they can see it. Well, the problem is They're QAnon. Like, on, I, support, like, I support climate change activists, therefore I have to act lukewarmish 
on the on the morality of destroying works of international significance. Right? And I'm like, you would never do that if it was a different people trashing these works. No, no, no. When never. the Taliban blew up the the Buddha, right? Were they like, well, you know, it just goes to show, you know, how important that artwork is. <laughs> Never. Never. <laughs> Do you know what I'm yeah. saying? There's no way they would have done it. Right. You can't the QAnon maybe not the best example because no, it's QAnon is so, so easily disproven. Yeah, it's a shitty example. But maybe more like Tea Party people. Like sure. so, Tea Party a, people. Yeah, pro life individuals. Right wing ideology. Yeah, like like pro life yeah. individuals destroying works of art. Yeah. Would they would not on NPR go like, eh. Yeah. In defense of those people that are I can see it. doing that, <laughs> they're know? not really destroying the works of art. They're throwing like soup at glass, like because all that work of art, all those works of art, are protected. Yeah, chaining themselves. They, yeah, they, they describe painting. they describe some item as gunk. I don't know what that was. I thought that was shoddy journalism. Mm. Gunk. Oh, back to my advice though. Okay. <laughs> so I feel like you, like you. you I know you know about it. The, the, there was a piece in, I don't know if it was the New York Times or New York Times Magazine about you. How long ago? I don't know. I, they, someone had asked me to comment. I said, do oh. I, you know, you're like, I'm not talking to him. I'm not going anywhere near it. That one wasn't that bad. I heard about that one. No, but why I did, heard you, it wasn't why did you not get in there? Why would I? I, I put out <laughs> enough content. People can form their own opinions. Isn't that funny though? No one pays attention to all the content you put out. I not that no one does, but you know what I'm saying? It'd be like, you talk for, I don't know, how, how many hours a week do you talk? A lot. Yeah. Yeah. But then someone will talk for you and it gets a lot of gravity. It doesn't get as much gravity as each episode. Probably not. No. Not no. even close. No, you're right. You're right. I can, no, I can see your point. I can yeah. see your point. The amount of people that listen to each episode dwarfs everything that's ever been written about me, ever, for sure. Hmm. So there's that. I'm not saying, hmm, like that's a problem. I mean, sure, rationally, I understand the numbers, but I'm saying, hmm, like that's, a, that's an interesting approach. You, I don't think you can continually engage. Again, I don't think you should. Like you can't engage have a hit yourself. piece. No one can make a hit piece that's gonna. No one's gonna make a hit piece on you that's gonna reach more eyeballs than you. Yeah. Well, if I was just like an actor on a show, mm-hmm. that would be a real problem. If someone makes a, a hit piece about you, because you, you lose your position on the show. Yeah, you lose your position on the show for sure, and also you don't have an outlet to explain yourself other than those other media outlets, oh, and you're yeah. subject to their bias. Yeah. You know, but this is a weird, we're in outrage culture. We're, we're in a culture of clicks and clickbait and, you know, everybody just wants things to be outrageous and, and, and incite anger. And that's also accentuated by the algorithm of social media, which is a real problem. I don't know if you ever watched that documentary, uh, the social dilemma. Oh yeah. Fucking terrifying. Oh no, 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 no. I didn't watch that. It's I, a, I watched the one uh, social network. Sorry, oh, r- wrong yeah. couple decades. Not terrifying. <laughs> wrong couple decades. <laughs> no, but I still have that actor. Like whenever I hear the Mark Zuckerberg, I always think of the actor. Yeah, not Mark Zuckerberg. You know, I didn't ask him what he thought about that when I had him in here. But he's he's a no, I, yeah, reasonable. I haven't watched Social Dilemma. He's a reasonable person. I saw you had him on, but I haven't listened to that. He's a very reasonable guy. He's a very nice guy. Like you talked to him outside of it, and again, didn't want that. Didn't try to become that person was trying to make a, a social media like application for people in college where they could like write stuff about themselves like hey, no uh, wasn't it like i don't know wasn't it like a dating thing or something well i i can't I, i'm too i'm not I don't know. I well, haven't seen the movie. D- definitely didn't I, I know think. there was some part of that shit that it was like hot or not. Remember that? 
Were you like upped or downed? I didn't watch the movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the history of the thing, there's some part of it where it was like a, um, like I said, I shouldn't because there's million, literally millions of people that know this history better than me. So I'm gonna back out on saying what I'm gonna say because I'm probably fucked up about it. I think all he was trying to do is make like, like a MySpace type deal. Mm-hmm. You know, make some sort of a innocuous social media thing. And no one knew that social media would ever become what it is now. So now you got this guy that's in charge of this company that literally affects the way world politics go. And like they can overthrow governments with propaganda using his platform. Yeah. And in uh, in some countries, when you buy a phone, that's like the thing that comes preloaded on your phone. And like they think of Internet as Facebook. Like that's what they use for messaging. That's what they use for everything. And it's billions and billions of people. And imagine like being that guy. And, you know, he's constantly attacked too. Everything that he says gets scrutinized and analyzed and put under a microscope. And that's got to be a very bizarre way to live as well. Oh, yeah. And crawl into a deep, dark hole. Because <laughs> he didn't ask for that. That's not what he was trying to do. You know, and the, this podcast. I didn't try to make it this big. I just kept doing it. Yeah. That's all I did. Uh, I think I can't remember if I ever asked you about this or not, but I think a thing that happens, and I, and I, I puzzle over it, is the idea that if... No, I, I did ask you about this once. The idea that as more people listen to you, you have more of a responsibility to like reflect. Yeah, As more people listen to you, you have more responsibility to not be whimsical or goofy or say crazy shit just to stir the pot. I never say crazy shit just to stir the pot. I'd say it for fun. <laughs> like if there's comedians in here and yeah, we're, yeah, yeah. we're talking shit, we say crazy shit just for fun. Yeah. Like there's this podcast I do called Protect Our Parks. And the, it's a joke name because Ari, one of the guys that I do it with, Ari Shafir, he, there was a park in New York City that they were going to level and now it's like fucking condos. They're going to put a prison there and a bunch of shit. And uh, he was like, it's a fucking great park. This is bullshit. You know, like, so do what you can to try to. And so we were ragging on him. Like, and he's saying, uh, Ari, we got to protect this park, Ari. <laughs> and they obviously they did level it. You know, so the name of the podcast became Protect Our Parks. Yeah. Just for fun. But that is the most ridiculous podcast ever. Like, we, we just four of us were always high and drunk. And we're talking crazy shit and just talking over each other and it's just really rowdy and nuts. But there's no responsibility. It's like that. It's not responsible at all. It's yeah. a completely irresponsible podcast. But it's not on purpose. Like it's not like we're doing it to try to stir people up. We're just doing it to talk shit and have fun. Mm-hmm. That's the benefit of being a comedian, though. Like you always have that. Like you. Like if you say something outrageous, it's like it's not really what you mean. You're just talking shit. You're just having fun. Yeah, but people will. This is a weird time where people pretend that talking shit is not a thing, that everything you say cannot be in jest at all, and you know if you take it and put it in a quote in an article, like it, it you know, like joking around opinions could be completely misconstrued. What's your take on? Um, I just read a piece the other day in the journals about a executive at Apple, an Apple executive who's a yeah. car enthusiast. Yeah, I know Have that. Have you already talked about this? No, no, we haven't, but yeah. So there's a there's a TikToker whose shtick is that 
he'll at, he'll catch people in luxury cars, I gather, noteworthy cars. And his thing is like, hey, what do you do for a living? He approaches an Apple executive. Who I, this? The detail that matters to me the most is the guy's with his wife. He's not at a work function, and he's with his wife, which totally changes what he's how he answers. Yeah, he's with his wife, and he decides to quote a movie that's becoming increasingly obscure as the years go by, which is the movie Arthur, which is like a comedy about a drunk. Who is that? Dudley Moore. Okay, Dudley Moore. Nineteen eighty-one. Okay. And he says, someone says, what do you do for a living? And he said, he's trying to be funny, and he quotes Arthur. Let's play it. Oh, here we go. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. What do you do for a living? <laughs> I race cars, play golf, and fondle big-breasted women. <laughs> but I take weekends and major holidays off. Okay. That is quite the career. I'm looking to get into that. His wife also, is laughing. If you're interested, i got a hell of a dental plan. Okay. <laughs> you do it all. You do it all. Yeah. And you participate in this activity. Thank <laughs> you. His wife is laughing hilariously. Like Anyways, she thinks it's funny. That guy's job ain't no more. He, yeah, they fired him for that. <laughs> and I was, and I, was, I was trying to explain it to my wife the other day, and, and you know what? Though I was trying to explain it to her um, in the aftermath of my nine one one incident here in Austin, so we, I, we I didn't get her full take on it. <laughs> it's pretty. Apple exec was fired after being caught on video joking about fondling big-breasted women. Said he stayed up all night trying to get the TikTok down before it went viral. Imagine being that TikTok dude and having that dude getting a yeah. hold of you to say take it down. Yeah. You're like in a real um Yeah. That might be you really feeling like you had a lot of sway for that moment. He was in the company for twenty two years. Mm-hmm. Twenty two years and they fought they fired him for quoting a movie. A, a joke. A joke quoting a movie, which his wife, who was right next to him, thought it was hilarious. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one, this man. This is a fucking bizarre time of recreational outrage. The idea that someone would be actually outraged at him quoting that movie in front of his wife, like, that is crazy. And that you could lose your job for that. It almost makes me want to not buy an Apple phone. It really does. <laughs> it just makes me so angry that you would do something so stupid. You know, like... We're in a, the strangest of strange times when it comes to that shit, because the purity test is impossible for every, especially when you catch someone like that. Mm-hmm. You know, that no one's passing those these purity tests. You know, you catch you're probably just fucking around, having a great time, driving this beautiful car at a car event. Right? Wasn't it a car event? Mm-hmm. Just trying to have fun, being silly. Bye. Yeah. Yeah, that's your public take on breasts. No, it's, Forever. It's, I know. I read that and I was like, oh, that's a that's a really difficult <sighs> that's a really it's <laughs> that's horrible. A difficult one. It's horrible. And the, the, the thing is the com- you know, the company would face backlash if they didn't do that, but how much? And for how long? Like, you know, they they like say, although we don't condone it, I, and the guy could say, I'm sorry, I was just quoting a movie. I thought it was funny. I realized it was offensive. My apologies. And I'm gonna donate all this money to big breasted women. Who have back problems. <laughs> sure, yeah. Like, but the fact that they face zero backlash for firing that guy, that's disturbing. Because they're, they're incentivized to make the worst choice. The worst choice is to fire this guy for something silly. Just a joke. Yeah, the tonality of the thing I read was, uh, was had, I don't know, man. I, I read between the lines a little bit of eye roll, but it wasn't condemnation. Condemnation's appropriate for that, not for him, but for the company. No, that's what I mean. Yeah. It was it was a little bit of like, wow. 
I mean, because like I said, it pointed out like his wife, you know, I don't know why it changes so much for me that the guy's wife was there, but it changes a lot for me. It does, because if he was just some playboy, some guy who's just uh, working at Apple, making millions and being, you know, being a jerk. But even then, it's not being a jerk. He's quoting a movie and his wife thought it was hilarious. She's right next to him. She thinks it's so funny, you know, and he's an older guy. So he remembers Arthur. You know, that's mm-hmm. a, I remember that quote. Like, find, see if you can find uh, the quote from Arthur. Well, this was reported in September when it happened. The video was recorded in August. Uh, this ha- the incident, I suppose, happened in September. But why the hell did I just are, read about it the other day? I know these articles I'm seeing are just posted this past week. I'm wondering why it's going around again now. It's kind of hmm. seems the timing is a little weird. Well, he's been talking about it now. Oh, that might be why he sat. He sat for a portrait in the in the journal article. Hmm. So he's going on like a press run about it. Well, yeah. you know, he might be get he might be fixing to take some legal. Okay, he probably yeah. is, and justifiably so. Yeah. Um, I mean, is that? Oh, come on. But you know what, man? We're we're also doing. You know what? We're doing the. Um, let me reapproach this. You might remember that you recently had Bill Mayer Bar Mar. How's the little? Yeah, Mar. <laughs> you know, on 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 your show, and I listened to that with great interest and he had a, he was talking about you know he's like historically regarded as like you know a very noteworthy liberal but he was expressing you know that that the left gives him so much good material and his kind of crusade against um present culture and certain things around free speech and all that um and that conversation this one we're having right now got me to thinking that that you almost can fall into the same trap, and I don't even know how it's different, is the outrage, recreational outrage. At what point is the recreational outrage about this stuff become its own form of recreational outrage? Mm. Like, you know, you hear it, you hear crazy stuff from any spectrum, right? You hear crazy stuff, and you're like, that's, this has gone too far. You're like, jeez, I'm just like, you know? Yeah. I'm sort of like becoming everybody else. Yeah. Because I sit around being like, holy cow, really? With his wife? (laughs) I wonder where it goes. That's the thing. Because it seems to be accelerating. Like, if that guy did that 10 years ago, no one would bat an eye. Yeah. But now it's it's outrageous. Listen, man. Grounds for firing. It definitely, I mean, I have definitely, and not only in a, not in a negative way, I don't think. I have definitely taken note of shit that I grew up saying in the atmosphere where like in the atmosphere I grew up like very normal things to say I have definitely taken note that um it's hurtful to some people it's hurtful to people and I don't get that much out of saying it. I'm not like sacrificing something right growing up I mean it's just I mean, without you know, you you could sit around all day and talk about how it, you know it didn't mean anything, um, whatever. Uh, just like stupid shit you'd say in junior high, right? And now you know, over like over the time that's gone on, I've realized you know I don't know why I didn't think about saying that. I don't. I definitely don't need to say that. It's not what I think. It's not how I feel. I'll happily expunge that from the old vocabulary. Right. Right. I mean, it just happens. Yeah. It just happens, and it's that 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 sort of self censorship and the idea of being a more empathetic person is a good thing, right? But 
as long as it's reasonable. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, the problem with that kind of stuff is it continues to go in the same direction where more and more things become forbidden and toxic to the point where, you know, the Elon Musk joking around about my pronouns are prosecute Fauci. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel made a, a tweet back to him. He said, your pronouns are ass and whole, <laughs> which is pretty funny. But then, um, Did he I, really? yes. And so then I read that and there was people <laughs> saying, please don't joke about pronouns. It's transphobic to joke about pronouns. So they were chiding him for participating in a joke about pronouns. Hold which on, is, hold on. So, so Jimmy Kimmel was doing it. He, oh yeah. He was doing it too. Yeah, he was doing it too. Yeah. No, he was being accused of joking about yes. it too. Yes. So they were upset at him, even though he was attacking the appropriate yeah. person. He was doing it in a manner which is also construed as being transphobic. Like they were talking, they were saying that his tweet is transphobic. Do you think that was, in that case, do you think that's him or a writer? Can't you tell? Jimmy Kimmel? Yeah. No, it's him for sure. Okay. Yeah. That's, good. that's a good one. He's a comic. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, he used to host the man show. I mean, he's he's done some pretty outrageous shit back in the day. Yeah, you know, for for he he's and haw haws. No, that's a good but, joke. But, on top of a good joke. Yeah, it's a good joke. Funny thing to say. He's uh, had a real problem with uh, Elon from the beginning of this thing, but it's like he's in this leftist thought bubble. Uh-huh. He is in the most leftist thought bubble available, which is Hollywood. And you know, and I think also, you know, he. Famously, there's some videos of him in blackface, and those came out, and he had apologized for them. And I think mm. he took that hit and like really doubled down in the other direction. I mean, that's just speculation, but he, you know, now is a guy that goes after people like Elon Musk. Yeah, which is you know he's Elon is thought of as being because he's willing to uh put people on with uncomfortable opinions and he's re- he's like uh releasing people that were banned from twitter uh, because because of things that they had said he's like as long as you haven't done anything illegal I'll let you back on no oh, yeah. yeah so he's doing a lot of that so it's a lot of people are upset by that because then they think you know well you're you're platforming bigots and hateful people and <sighs> it's a fucking it's a it's a weird conversation because I'm I'm a, a free speech believer. I think the way to counter someone's inappropriate, even someone like Kanye West, that says ridiculous shit, uh, anti-Semitic things. The the way to counter that is to counter that with more thoughtful opinions on what he's saying and point out that what he's saying is inaccurate in many ways, hurtful in many ways. Like point it out. Like talk. Let's have discussion. Don't silence the guy. Would you have him on? The I remember you invite. I remember one time you invited him to come on long, years ago. He was on. Oh, yeah, he did. Yeah, he's been on. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, my yeah. fault. I remember you inviting him to come on about like years ago. It was like no one wants to talk about mental health. And I remember you had said like, yeah. s- said something to the effect of any time, but I didn't know that. Oh, he, he, it's my bad. a good conversation to listen to if you want to understand how he works because he he works in rants, these long rants, and sometimes when you're ranting. You know, especially when you're a guy like that, you really don't exactly know what the fuck you're saying while you're saying it. And you're sort of justifying it while you're saying it, mm-hmm. and you're, you're like working stuff out in real time. And sometimes you go down roads that are just not fruitful. Yeah, it's like gotta... me yelling at my kids. Man. <laughs> <laughs> you got to back up and regroup. 
And unfortunately for him, he does not do that. He doubles down. And then he continues to double down. And then it's gotten worse. And he posted a Star of David that was wrapped up in a swastika. Oh, yeah. He just, you know, what made him a I've said this ad nauseum, but what made him a great rapper is he's incredibly prolific and wildly creative. Like, he's just, he can just go and go and go. The problem with that, when you apply that to talking about serious issues, is that, like it's not just a rap lyric. It's it's your opinion on things, and you know his opinion, he, the way he raps is like everything's got like so much power behind it. It's just bam, 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 and his music and the beats and everything, and it's just overwhelming. Mm-hmm. But you with dialogue, it requires a more thoughtful understanding of how people are going to interpret what you're saying. And I don't think he thinks that way. I think he just rants. Yeah. There was a, I should remember better details on it, but there was a, it was a, a legal question. Again, I can't remember what state it was, was whether your music could be used against you in court mm. to capture your state of mind. Oh, wow. But Jamie would find that in no time. The problem with that is, like, people absolutely say things in in rap lyrics and rock and roll lyrics that are theatrical. It's not that they mean that. It's just like Quentin Tarantino's dialogue in a film. Yeah, it's not. It's, he's making a character, and what what he means from that character is, you know, he's trying to paint a film, trying to paint a picture inside of a film. Yeah, it's like, that old, it's like that old Joe Rogan joke. How come no one's mad at uh, um, Johnny Cash for kill- yeah. <laughs> killing a man just to watch him die? <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And guess what? Bob Marley never really shot the sheriff. <laughs> yeah. That was not real. Proposed federal bill to limit music lyrics being used as evidence. Jesus. It's more about uh, specific acts that were committed and... Oh, like details of crimes. Okay, yeah. Well, that's the thing about like gangster rap, is that they will actually detail specific things that they have been accused of, which is more problematic. Oh, it's like OJ's book, If I Did It? Right. Yeah. 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 I had a copy of that. I think my wife threw it out, because I can't find it. She's (laughs) tight-lipped. Somebody gave me, I forget who, some comic gave me a signed copy of OJ's If I Did It. Really? Yeah, I never even cracked the book. I don't even think I ever even, I think it was sealed. You better watch out because he'll break into your house trying to get his shit back. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be his own, you'll think it's his own memorabilia. I think he's done with that. (laughs) Isn't it amazing that that's what he went to jail for? Yeah, there's that uh, Norm MacDonald bit where it's a... him trying to establish his bona fides in prison and he's like well hey man i killed my wife and a waiter you know they're like no you did not <laughs> like the fellow prisoners can't take him seriously <laughs> right trying to establish his bona fides that's funny no you were acquitted bro that shit ain't real all you did is get your merch back at gunpoint yeah did you ever see the rap video that oj simpson did mm-hmm O.J. Simpson, when he got out, he... Oh, I heard about it, but never saw it. Yeah, with Naked naked Women. Hmm. Did a rap music video with scantily clad women where he's, like, dressed... Wasn't he dressed like a king? Wearing, like, a crown and a cape and shit? Something like that? We played it before. It's pretty ridiculous. No, I didn't know about but, it. you know, I think there was a time where he was just trying to figure out a way to make money, and he just 
leaned into it. Dude, that big ESPN documentary was phenomenal, man. On him? Yeah. I never saw it. Really? No. Made in America? No, you I watch that? It. No. Dude, that documentary, my God, it's good. It's long. It's a real commitment. That documentary starts out talking about like L.A., okay, the layout of L.A. and the different neighborhoods and where the sports stadium is located. And you're like, how in the world are these people going to bring this home? An O.J. documentary. And holy shit, do they. Yeah. I mean, it is, if you want to understand, I don't want to say what you, if, if you want to greatly enhance your understanding of money, celebrity, uh, justice in America, made in America, is phenomenal. Mm. It's good. I okay. feel like you'd like it the most. I'll check it out. I didn't even know it existed. Oh, yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I never heard of it. It's this, unbelievable. This and I'm sitting there thinking, man, these guys are losing a lot of viewers right now when when it began. Because <laughs> I thought people are like, I want the part about the blood. There it is. Yeah. Best documentary feature. OJ wow. Made in America. I, can you remember where you were when you when they read the verdict? Oh, yeah. I remember where I was when they read the verdict, and I remember where I was during the car chase. Oh, yeah. I was in a bar in Muskegon, Michigan called Bo Nicky's with Eric Kern, my late friend. Wow. During the car chase, and the verdict was read. I was renting a, I was, uh, renting a home in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan with some dudes I didn't really know, and I was cutting through the living room. And they were watching. I was at. Uh, I was probably going out to some other bar. <laughs> <And that's, laughs> I was at a bar too. I was at Boston Comedy. It was a comedy club in the Village. We had heard about it, and we're like, "What mm -hmm. the fuck is going on?" O.J. Simpson is in a car chase with the cops. And that, and Made in America, they talked to some of the jurors, and the jurors were like it was never about whether he did it. Mm. it wasn't for me. Yeah. Well, it was after Rodney King. Yeah. yeah. It was like it was about L.A. It was about L.A. We're talking, yeah. we're, you know, I mean, they come kind of flat out say it. It's like, that's not where my, I wasn't, my mind wasn't totally there as much as it was about, I was, it's L.A., L.A.P.D. That's what I was here to talk about. Yeah. I mean, more or less, I'm paraphrasing, but more or less. It's like trying to figure out how to fix policing. It's like clearly the way to fix policing is not give them unlimited power and let them do whatever they want to do. That's not the way to do it. So is the way to do it to diminish their power greatly and diminish public perception of the police and public opinion of the police to where it is now or where it was during the George Floyd riots, at least? No, that's not how to do it. Like defund the police. That's not how to do it. No, either. I think that's ridiculous, man. It's ridiculous. The The way is through training and education and, and maybe even elevating the position of being a police officer to make it more difficult to achieve and make it pay better and make them much more highly trained and, you know, treated almost like a, the way you would treat like special ops groups in the military, mm -hmm. you know, where it's, it's an honor to be a part of that group. And it's a very difficult power to attain because the, to be a police officer in some places in the country, it's pretty fucking easy. They don't have a lot of cops. And, you know, and you see some cops and they're just grossly overweight. Like some of the saddest things to me are uh, these uh, breakdowns that they do like um, on video. They'll, they'll do like uh, martial arts breakdowns of how bad cops are. 
at uh, physical altercations. Oh, I've never seen one. Yeah, there's a bunch of them. I can picture that being like ripe for comedy oh, in yeah. some respects. Yeah, it's ripe for comedy, but it's also ripe for jujitsu instruction. Like, oh, no kidding. Also, yeah. using an actual practical way. Yeah, because oh, they're, they're they're talking about how piss poor these guys are. Like, yeah, I'm with you. Physical. Imagine like your job is to enforce the law, which may or may not include deadly force. And restraining people, and you don't know how to restrain people. Mm-hmm. You have no idea how to do it. Like that's a big part of the job, is to be physically capable of engaging in one-on-one, hand-to-hand combat with a person, and you have zero ability. Yeah, and, which then, is to, and wild. then to learn it rote enough that you're able to do it without doing like way overblown response. Yes. Yeah, I, I think that. As I've as I've looked at what's happened to public perception of police officers over the last few years, it reminds me of of, of a similar thing I feel about um, the polarity in America, where you have your experience, you have your lived experience, okay, and then you have the experience that you understand to be true from the news. So from the news, you understand that we're in this period of tremendous divisiveness. And and um, America splitting apart at the seams. No one wants to engage anymore in a civil function. Everything's we're, we're perched on the edge of violence. Okay, you get that, but then you analyze what is going on in your life as you go about your life, like having a job, raising kids, engaging with. The, 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 the public school professionals where your kids go, traveling around the country, riding with, uh, with Uber drivers, de- dealing with whoever, okay? And you'd, you'd be like, you'd, if someone wasn't telling you it was happening, you wouldn't know that it's happening. Right. This is a very personal experience for me. I wouldn't know. I would think that, 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 it was, that we were still having this kind of like a, 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 an experience of of um, American mutual respect across a bunch of different things. Like, that's my experience. Same thing, I grew up where if you saw cops, you'd, like, turn the radio down, right? Or being, like, a little bit worried about game wardens because you're probably doing something a little bit like you weren't supposed to do. Um, But now, uh, in dealing with many law enforcement officials I deal with either at work or otherwise, like, I wouldn't see it. Yeah, I, I wouldn't see I, I wouldn't see it that the profession was be called was that the profession itself was being called into question, mm. you know, because it's not your lived experience. Yeah, it's just like I don't you know, I, I don't get it. And a lot of people will tell you, well, that's part of the problem because you, ha- you know, you're you're privileged in so many ways. So that's your experience. But just funny to live in these to live in these real these like dual realities of what you understand to be occurring and then what you're seeing occurring, mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, that is a problem. And it also you're dealing with the problems that are occurring to millions and millions of people, in fact billions all over the world, and the only thing that you read about is things that are bad. Yeah. That's a problem too. I always try to enforce that with people when they have opinions of police officers. I'm like, you know, cuz there's so many videos of cops doing shady shit. I'm like, yes. There's bad people at every profession. Every fucking profession that exists is just because some people just have poor character. They're just not good at what they do. But there's millions of interactions with cops and people every day, and nothing's nothing goes wrong, and they're fine and peaceful. 
but you don't take that into account. So like when you're making and you have an understanding of what's happening in the world in terms of people and their interactions with police officers, it's very biased by the information that you've been subjected to. And that information is almost entirely negative because you're only dealing with the stuff that you see that's horrible unless you've had personal experiences. And then your personal experiences vary greatly depending upon the color of your skin, Mm -hmm. your economic situation, what part of the world you're living in. You know, I have friends that are black and they talk about getting pulled over and they said I, they are terrified. Yeah. They, they feel like they could get shot at any moment where I have never experienced that. I'm always very respectful to the cops. I don't think they think, well, obviously a lot of them know who I am, so that's not a problem too. But it's it's very different for, and to try to get like a balanced, nuanced perspective of our problem with police and policing and crime in this country, it's very difficult to be objective. Especially if you've had a, a horrible negative personal experience in, or a personal experience of someone that you're close to. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's weird. It's, and it's also, this is also an information issue because you're, you're juggling so much information. You have so much data to process and to try to put it all together and have a, a nuanced, objective analysis of what it really is. Uh, one time I was at a... I was in New York and I was going to a meeting with some, uh, there was these, these restaurant owners, fairly high profile restaurant owners, and they were looking to do this, this book project about their restaurant. And uh, I was not quite, in a, I wasn't a totally established writer at the time, and I, w- and I was interested in doing this work for them. Uh, my agent set me up to have dinner with them. I'm going through a subway, and I didn't know the, the, about the knife rules in New York City. I had, uh, as I do now, I have a pocket knife clipped to my um, pocket. So the clip's out and the knife's in. And I realized there's kind of this bum sort of like walking real close to me. And I look at him kind of like, what the fuck, you know? And he flashes a badge at me. And he takes me into this little room down in the subway system in New York. A bum, so a fake bum. Fake bum. Whoa. And I get, uh, I had a, my, I had an Alaska driver's license. Um, so he's like, ask me a bunch of questions about Palin. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I hung out with her. And then he, I get a con- uh, concealed deadly, I don't know, like a dead, de- they take my knife, I get a court date, and I can't remember what the, what the, uh, I can't remember what the crime was. Something to do with like a deadly weapon, wielding, I don't know what the hell it was. It was like a real thing, right? I get a court date, but I get let go. I don't get arrested. I get detained and let go, minus my knife with a court date. I go to my meeting. I'm now late for my meeting. I go to my meeting, and it's a husband and wife team, financial partners in this restaurant stuff. I go like, hey, I'm late. You'll never guess what. And I got a ticket. He takes my ticket and goes into a back room. The dude's not in that back room five minutes. And he comes out and says, you can tear that ticket away. You can tear that ticket up. And I go, really? And he goes, yeah, it's done. And he goes, but I mean, really, you need to pull that ticket out right now and tear it up. And it was over. So, uh, oh, here's another thing. Why did you need to tear it up? He didn't want me having it as a souvenir. 
Oh, wow. Which I would I would love to have had it as a souvenir. <laughs> you, know what I mean? you know what I'm saying? Another time, so another time, my wife thinks I tell this story way too much for how the relevance of it, but I got a, I got a drunken disorderly conduct. Okay. I got like in a skirmish. I got a, like, I got beat up, beat up by the cops a little bit, but I had it coming. My buddy Fitz likes to point out that 45 minutes before this happened, I had said in about 45 minutes, I'm going to be out of control. Uh, <laughs> I'm supposed to be leaving for graduate school, scared shitless, you know? My dad realizes that, I don't know, it's like through like his church, <clears throat> through the church he went to, he somehow finds someone that knows someone, right? I walk out of there getting a refund on my bail. Like my bail was 250 bucks. I got a $225 refund and he asked me if I could afford the 25 bucks, walked out the door because he found people that knew people. So you could grow up like with that shit yeah, and be like have a way different understanding of how, you know what I mean? Of what you can get away with. The legal process, right? And I could have been not had that a, a father with that level of ambition who didn't go to that church and might have been like I didn't go to graduate school. Right. Because I had resisting arrest. I had a resisting arrest charges. Mm. Yeah. But all of a sudden I didn't. Now <laughs> because imagine of connections. Imagine being Hunter Biden. Oh, you yeah. feel like you get away with anything. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, listen, my dad, my, my dad never finished high school. Right. So it's like, he's not like, he's not like that. Wasn't like that kind of power player. Right. He's just a dude in the community that, that started with the people at church and found his way doing like something very natural, which is like protect your, you know, your kid screwed up, protect your kid. Yeah. So yeah, you can wind up with, you know, and, and uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm just saying it's more as like full disclosure and me saying that like my existence has led me to have certain things like I've had some shit happen where for a lot of people, that's not how it would have gone down. Right. You could have done some jail time. Sure. Yeah. Or worse. I had to be there all night. Do you know that story? <laughs> There's a woman who got pulled over by the cops. It's a, a pretty famous story of abuse. He, uh, This woman gets pulled over by the cops and she's smoking in her car. And I think she wasn't doing anything crazy, you know, like maybe speeding a little bit, nothing crazy. But she's smoking a cigarette in her car, and the cop tells her to put the cigarette out. And she's like, why should I? I don't, I don't have to put the cigarette out. And he's like, get out of the car. And she's like, I'm not getting out of the car. Like, why, why, am I, why are you detaining me? And he manhandles her, arrests her. She winds up dead in her cell. What? They, yeah. Because of secondhand smoke. No, no, no. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that. But I mean, winds up. They said that she committed suicide, but it's very suspicious. The whole thing is very suspicious. Hmm. Oh, I do remember. Yeah, remember that story? Yep. Now it's coming back. Yeah. The, that 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 claim is reminding me of the story, but I, I didn't remember that that was the details. That it was just about like whether or not you know she had the authority to smoke or not. Yeah, I mean, how do you <clears throat> not have the authority to smoke in your car? I mean, if a cop pulls you over, it's one thing if he's arresting you. And you you know you've done something horrible. You got coke and guns in your car, and you're a fucking psychopath. But you're just speeding, and and he's on some power trip, and he tells you you have to put your cigarette out. You don't want to, so he drags you out of your fucking car and puts you in a cage, mm -hmm. and then somehow or another she winds up dead. And they said she committed suicide, but it's very suspicious. The whole thing is just like, and it's it's a story of abuse. It's like, and you can watch the video of it. You can watch the video from his squad car. Of him being abusive. You know, that's someone's different experience. Oh, yeah. And she's a black woman. 
you know, he's a white cop. And that, that, that kind of video, that's the, the, those kind of videos, and there's many of them, that's what really accentuates this distrust that so many people, particularly people of color, you know, people, ethnicities, minors, uh, minorities rather, um, have this issue with police. Because that, that's real. Yeah. That doesn't happen to me. You know, it probably wouldn't happen to you. As I explained, it does not. Yeah. Also, <laughs> as I explained, it I'm doesn't happen to me. One of those guys, the cop tells me to put it out. I'll say, yes, sir. I'll put it out. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not interested in like, I, you know, when, if I ever get in a situation with a cop, I'm, it's all sir. And oh, after you know. my, after my idiotic uh, episode that one night, which was, at, it was at a, it was at like a, um, it was at Muskegon Summer Festival or some shit like that. I remember it was Bob Dylan's kid was playing. Jacob, Jacob Dylan. Remember uh, Wallflowers? I've had him on here. I've had him on the podcast. He's been on? Yeah. Nice yeah. guy. Yeah, it was him. He was playing. Oh. Uh, what was I just getting at? Oh, after that whole thing happened and I was like so stupid and really did something really stupid. Um, my t- My tonality in dealing with getting like pulled over for traffic violations is to be ex- like my tonality is to be like uh man i am so sorry for wasting your time yeah that's a good perspective yeah i mean cops are the amount of ptsd cops have is very underappreciated the way they live their life like anytime you pull someone over you get shot in the face it, at any second sure man shit, shit can go and there's a lot of those videos too People don't think about that. I mean, the, the the job itself, there's probably very few people that can do that job and come out of it and not be really fucked up. You know, I know a lot of cops from my years of martial arts and people I know that have you know seen horrific shit like that that are cops. They're, they're all fucked up, all of them. Yeah. Every day they're seeing something. Uh, I work with a retired um I work with a retired cop. One day I was talking to him about we were looking at a list of states ranked for suicide in Montana, um, where I live and where he's from, was his top of the list. Really? Yeah. Why? My guess, uh, my guess is you have a lot of um, extreme poverty and really bad situations on a lot of reservations mm. and there are multiple you know, five five or six large reservations where there's just a, a, a legacy of um despair in some of these places a lot of military so I, I'm, I'm guessing i don't know um I, I don't i don't even remember looking at all the states to see if you could find some kind of commonality between them uh, however, I said, and, and we're looking at this and I said, man, can you believe there were like blank suicides in Montana? And he said, man, I feel like I've been to half of them. And you know, <laughs> that shit's, Oh man, that must wear on do you. Do you know what I mean? That's got to wear on you. There's no way it doesn't. Oh. No, Cause you, you know, you, you build your view of the world based on what you experience, what you take in, you know, in terms of media and, and writing, and then your physical experiences, which are more profound. And imagine if your physical experiences include a lot of suicide. Mm-hmm. I got another buddy. I don't want to be like slightly more cryptic because <clears throat> I just don't want to 
you know, I want to conceal his identity a little bit, though I'm not going to say anything that would, would peg him, but he grew up in a town of 9,000 people. So he spent his whole life there and became a cop late, right? He had another career and, and became a cop and must have been in his early 40s when he became a cop. 9,000 people. And he, he, he was forever transformed after just a couple years because he said, I thought I knew my town and I thought I knew the people in my town. I don't know how I went through life not knowing what's going on. Mm, you've told me about this before. Yeah. yeah. Shit. The, the, amount of, uh, the amount of spousal abuse, the amount of child abuse, the amount of substance abuse. He's like, I simply, I don't know how I didn't know, but I didn't know. But and it was 9, under my people. nose all the time. 9,000 people so small. And he says, now I can't. Like, it's just my town's not my town. Or it is, but it's not what I, it's not what I thought. Wow. Yeah, your town, you think of it as your neighbors. They're friendly. Guy at the grocery store is friendly. Oh, I live in a great place. Yeah. Meanwhile, behind doors, people are doing meth and beating the fuck out of each other. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. That's the, you know, that's one of the big stories in this country is chemical abuse. Like how many people are hooked on pills? How many people are fucked up and addicted to substances? I mean, it's a, just a, a tremendous problem that if it doesn't, if you don't experience it personally, one-on-one, -on -one, you really have no idea. You really don't know. And then, you know, you, you encounter someone who's dealing with that and then you realize how this, the scope of it. I mean, it's a massive problem in this country. Chemical abuse, meth, pills, opiates, you name it, amphetamines. I mean, it's just, it's a huge, huge fucking problem. And with that comes all kinds of violence, all kinds of abuse. If you're a cop, that's all you see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you're a guy like you or me, just goes to the office, says hi to your friends, people you work with, goes home to your kids, your wife, unless you zig when you should have zagged and you run into one of those people. Yep. You really don't know. No, you go down to the Thanksgiving potluck at your kid's school, and you're like, yeah. man, this community's full of people who are just really dedicated to their children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny, but it's also fucked. Yeah. yeah man, this podcast took a fucking dour turn. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. You bring it out. <laughs> is, that, is it me? I think it's just the you and that book about China you've been reading. Oh man, it's rough. It's disturbing. International politics scares the shit out of me. Mm -hmm. This uh, Brittany Griner trade for that arms dealer scares the shit out of me. Man, you know what's funny? Oh. So I had one. Pa <laughs> I had one passive under. I had like one understanding of it, <clears throat> where I'm like, oh. So she broke a rule. The rule seems like not that big of a deal. It's nothing. But, you know, as my friend Chris recently said, rules is rules. So she she breaks a rule. And I'm like, holy shit, they're really, like, using her as a political pawn. Yeah. And then they get her back with an arms dealer, trade an arms dealer, and you wonder about whether that's an asymmetrical, somehow an asymmetrical trade. But I don't know. I don't even know what's going on. And then you, and then you just—it's kind of like, oh, glad, glad she's back. And then you, and then talk about the outrage machine. Then you read like a narrative that'd be like, uh, we traded uh, international arms dealer. What's his nickname? Doctor Death or some shit. Merchant of Death. Merchant of Death. 
for a dope smoker. We didn't get the Marine back. The person didn't want the national anthem played at their games, right? And you go like, oh, there's a there's a narrative that I, you know what I mean? Yeah. There's like a well-crafted narrative that I didn't put together. Have you ever seen Russia's take on it? No. Oh, my God. It's, it's kind of crazy because it turned out that they offered one or the other. They offered either Paul Whelan, who oh, was the really? Marine. Yeah. Or the, that's what that's what they're the saying. Was, yeah, well, that's what NBC was saying as well. And then they really? they redacted it and changed their story. But yeah, that's oh. supposedly it was a one versus one. You could pick which one. And in Russia, there there's this uh, political show, sort of like a Fox News type show, where they're making. See if you can find it, Jamie. I'll, I'll send huh. it to you if you yeah, do. Do you know what it is? Yeah, yeah I, I'm trying to pull it up. It's just not the links. Not so there. the um, in this. Uh, thing they're just completely mocking like well he's one you know she uh he has one thing going against him he is a man and also you know he is white like here meanwhile in russia top state propagandists reveal the narrative they'll be pushing to harm biden and enrage americans about the exchange of Brittany griner for victor bout by falsely claiming that it wasn't russia's decision to oppose whelan's release as opposed to griner so it's hard to say um she this person who's saying this is saying that uh, it was Russia's decision to oppose Whelan's release, who they think was spying. Um, I don't know if he was or wasn't. He may have been, may have uh, been arrested for espionage. But see if you can find the video because well, it's, 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 it's going to be in Russian. So they, they don't have it. Um, <laughs> no, but it's um, you see the um, translation. Right. Well, people are listening now. Yeah, we'll translate it. He's got a great okay. point, Joe. Yeah, he does. So, of course, I was very amused but not surprised that Bout was exchanged for Griner and not Whelan. First of all, I congratulate Bout and his entire family. For many years, we have been in touch with his family and with him personally to the extent it was possible. We communicated with him to the extent that we could. Of course, this is a huge joy and relief for all of us. I can't even imagine. I can't say any more, Jamie. You touched it. Just go uh, full screen. That's what I was trying uh, okay. but, but he was not exchanged for the heroic spy because he is a spy. Whelan is a spy. He was apprehended while receiving information on a flash drive. He said he was supposed to get photos of churches and Sergei Posad on a flash drive. You send the church photos to WhatsApp, right? That's where we get them. Look where I've been. You don't, uh, quality would be decent, no worse than on a flash drive. He is a spy, therefore, to them, he is a hero. He's a hero, decorated Marine, covered in medals. He only has one, no two, no three problems. His first problem is he is white. Second problem is he is a man. Third problem, he is a heterosexual. And they're laughing. This is not something that can be forgiven today. It's just a catastrophe. Yet here, Griner beats him in every aspect. American voters were given a choice. A hero who suffered while serving his fatherland. A metal-covered hero who's covered, who's suffered during his service to his fatherland, the United States, or a black lesbian hooked on drugs. Oh, Jesus. Who suffered for a vape with hashish. 
and well-known for the sake of PR. American voters are choosing the obvious. I think for us, it's one, of, one more piece of good news. First good news is that Bout has returned. And the second good news is that a nation that spits on its heroes to the extent that it considers it significantly more important to free a rightly charged, well-known athlete. She didn't suffer because she served her motherland, but because she couldn't live for 10 hours without her hashish instead of freeing that person in prison for two years for serving his motherland. This says a lot about the state of this society. So this is just like basically Fox News in Russia. They're you know, they're, it's obviously a very propaganda-driven show. But you have to, that's like, that's the thing about Russia. Like, you can't have a show that shits all over the government in Russia. You could never have, like, when MSNBC was mocking, openly mocking Trump and, you know, CNN was constantly talking about Trump and it was jacking up their ratings. That's, like, not even possible in Russia. Yeah. You, you can't have a show like that. The Ruskies be all over your ass. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you could never have a, a society like this. This is what people don't understand when they try to impose censorship. It goes all the way through. You will eventually get to a point where it's only state-sanctioned information that's allowed to be sh distributed if you allow censorship. Mm -hmm. Because they've already shown that the government is deeply embedded in social media. And they, they, this is one of the things that's most disturbing about these revelations about whether it's the FBI or whatever intelligence agencies were behind s censoring certain people off of Twitter and removing certain people off of Twitter and re removing certain narratives and certain stories, like the Hunter Biden laptop story. Yeah. If you support that because it fits with your ideology, ultimately you support government control over a narrative. And that is, it's going to go the other way if a Republican gets in office. Then you're going to de deal with a, a similar problem. Imagine if there's... Imagine if instead of Hunter Biden's laptop, it was Donald Trump Jr.'s laptop. Mm -hmm. And Donald Trump Jr.'s laptop, he's getting f foot jobs by prostitutes and smoking street oh, crack dude, they in Vietnam. Had... <laughs> yeah. Do you think they would have censored that off of Twitter? Holy shit, man. Do you no, think they would have censored no. that off of Twitter and said, we can't verify the information? We don't know whether or not it's true. No. It has all the earmarks of Russian disinformation. It's not a fucking chance in hell. That's the problem. Like, the truth dies with censorship. You don't get a chance to sort out what's real and what's not. The government gets to decide for you. And if you ultimately believe in censorship and you ultimately believe in censoring the people that have opinions that disagree with your own, that's where this goes. This goes to fascism. This goes to a terrible place that no one wants that's unrecoverable. You can't recover from that. If you get to that point where the government controls the narrative completely and they get to dictate what gets distributed on social media, we're all fucked. Mm -hmm. All of us. The people that agree with the narrative, the people that disagree with the narrative, truth dies. Uh, it'll be interesting um, what gets released, if there's any additional information about the the collusion to uh, go after people who didn't get on with uh, COVID orthodoxy, mm. where the administration is actually flagging individuals yeah. who'd be shut down, and then they're pointing out where else to find them, or they just, they've moved to this other platform. Can we get them off this other platform as well? They were yeah. on, you know, they were on Facebook. Now they're on Instagram. Can you go get them? Yeah, it's yeah. kind of fucked. Well, it's also kind of fucked when you realize that the CDC. You know, where where does their funding come from? Well, a lot of it comes from pharmaceutical companies. 
And like, wh where's this narrative coming from? It comes from the government. Where does the, the television advertising come from? Well, 75% of television advertising is a pharmaceutical companies. Like the narratives that they push, you got to think they're at least slightly influenced by the people that give them all the money. Yeah. You know, uh, what's funny is we one time on our podcast, <clears throat> we were laughing about, we were talking about COVID getting into deer. Mm, right yeah which is it's real endlessly fascinating yeah yeah really uh, fascinating um and we were laughing that it must have come through <laughs> it must have come through doug Dern's pee <laughs> <laughs> and then we wound up with like uh <laughs> we wound up getting flagged in one of those distribution channels about for the truth about COVID. <laughs> oh my God, COVID misinformation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's like plugging it on, put <laughs> putting it all on Doug Dern. <laughs> well, what's fucked about COVID misinformation is a lot of the stuff that they were calling misinformation that would get you removed from social media now is just openly discussed as fact. Yeah, yeah. That's what's scary. Yeah. That's but, that's why that kind of censorship is dangerous because you don't get to find out what's right and what's wrong if you don't let everybody talk, including experts with problematic opinions. No, I think it'll be in time, it'll prove to be a great case study because it happened so fast and affected like all aspects of communication, all aspects of society, yeah. from local government to federal government, right? I mean, it was just like it was so quick and so everywhere and then kind of ended relatively quickly yeah so rather than like some grad you know rather than some gradual shift over time you know you'd be able to you'll be able to step back and no it won't be long like in five or six years you'd be able to step back and really go like okay here's what happened and you'd be able to look at like how ideas brand new ideas emerged were squashed, punished. People were punished for having ideas. Ideas came back out. It'll be a really interesting little segment to look at when it comes like the flow of information, how the flow yeah. of information is controlled, how um, narratives are reinforced, how people that um, pushed other ones were, you know, decried or delegitimized and then like very quickly later celebrated or pointed out. Yeah. I'd love to work on that documentary. That's a tricky one. Like in, in, in 25 years when there's a Netflix documentary about COVID. Yeah. I'll be on there like a talking head. I'll be like, I told him. <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see in 25 years what distribution of information is like. Yeah. Where would you put the documentary about it? <laughs> yeah. Well, where would you put any? I mean, I think if you think 25 years ago, there was no internet. Or mm -hmm. no internet the way it is now, at least. Yeah. 25 years from now, what are we going to be dealing with? It's probably going to be something that's so profoundly different than anything we ever expected. That it's, it's it's almost like we were talking about making a movie, a nonfiction movie about the future. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. That's 25 years from now, it's probably going to be neural implants, which I was reading a story today that like Elon might be in trouble, the Neuralink company, because of uh, animal abuse. Because uh, they they run these studies on monkeys and then they kill the monkeys, mm -hmm. which they do all the time. Whenever they do these studies with uh, animals, they they wind up killing the animals to find out like what kind of an effect these things had on the animals by doing autopsies on them. Yeah, and you know people are finding out that they did that to monkeys and that they open monkeys' heads up and put these fucking Neuralink things in there and and this is uh, outraging people, which is a, a very interesting moral dilemma. 
Like if you can fix all these diseases, if you can cure paralysis, if you can greatly expand the ability of the human mind through technology, but you have to kill a bunch of monkeys to do it. Are we okay with that? I don't think that that's going to become a. I don't think that'll become a widespread thing because you can't look at any. You can't. You can't look at any of our major medical breakthroughs um, that didn't have some level of animal research. Yeah. I think that on stuff that might strike people as relatively, you know, what might strike people as relatively frivolous, you know, testing comfort levels of shampoos and shit. Right, you can see people being like, ah, "That that doesn't seem to me something that really warrants the use of animal experimentation." Right, but I don't think I don't think that like the, the the preponderance or like mainstream Americans um, are going to turn against medical medical research that involves animal experimentation once they understand how much of what they enjoy has has been informed influenced discovered because of that mm. i think you make some noise about it but I, I i have a hard time seeing that becoming an actual problem yeah i think it's going to be it's a point of outrage for some people particularly animal rights people but that is the nature of a lot of those experiments mm -hmm. what do you think about that kind of shit like neural implants you ever thought about it? You no. looked into it? No. I mean, I might have read some things about it, but no, I don't have an opinion about it because I don't. Under, I don't understand. I'd have to have a question put to me, I guess, but I don't understand it enough to have an opinion about it. It's a weird thing, and it's probably going to be the future. It's it's probably going to inevitably, whether it's fifty years from now or five years from now, they're going to be doing that. They're going to be doing that to people. Putting it in you with what in mind? Enhancing your access to information, Got it. increasing the bandwidth that the human mind has to information. Initially, it'll be for people with injuries. It uh, apparently uh, can be used for people with uh, paralysis, and they'll be able to uh, use, you know, I'm going to crudely describe this for anybody who's an actual scientist. They're going to be able to, people that no longer have, uh, their spinal column has been severed. They're going to be able to bypass that and allow you to have access to your limbs Got it. with this technology. So initially, it'll have some very acceptable applications where people go, this is great. This is groundbreaking. People who are paralyzed can now walk. But then ultimately, what Elon said to me is you're going to be able to speak without using words. So there's going to be some sort of an interface that people have with each other. That's going. They're going to be able to be connected, whether it's through the internet or some other broadband type of technology. You're going to be able to access information, communicate with each other, and do all of it through these devices. I hope that thinking part you can turn off and on when you want, man. <laughs> Make arguing with your wife be a disaster, dude. <laughs> well, just access to the internet. Imagine access to everyone's opinions. Turn on your notifications for yeah. the whole world, and they're all inside your head. Sure. Fuck. So no, I don't like the sounds of that. No. The, but the disease stuff, for yes, sure. Sure. Who's going to sure. argue against it? That that puts you in a weird. That puts you always in a moral bind. Would be, um, you know, you kind of get into like, well, you know, AI makes me very uneasy. However, when put to use for national security, 
Or, right. no, they want to put an implant in your brain. Okay, but what about uh, allowing this this child who's never walked, this child who's never seen to see? Oh, yeah, well, in that case. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things that you do is you interface with the natural world in a way that most human beings don't. You're constantly in the wilderness. You're mm-hmm. constantly uh, among, among wild animals in these wild places. And you have a very different view of society and a very different view of just life than most people do, I think, because of that. Yeah, I think that that I think that that stuff and I definitely think it informs it. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I've tried to capture this in various ways, too. But I I I think of. I, I I think uh, I look for the ways in which I think though of humans in, in which humans are still animals. I mean, we just we are like empirically, right? You know, you can't deny it, right? But no one no one would come and say, you know, no one would come and argue that you know we're not a mammal, okay? I I just see the ways in which um we're governed by similar impulses or in ways which our experiences aren't that different from that. And and I embrace it, you know, um, I embrace it. I try to get my, I try to help my kids to see it as well. Mm. And I think in some ways it causes, in some ways that you, in, in explaining things to kids or and think about yourself, you, you commit the, uh, what, what some people might regard as the crime of anthropomorphism, right? Where you, uh, where you give animals human attributes, human feelings, but when I'm looking at wildlife with my kids, I do it all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever that buck is jealous of that other buck, right? Right. You just, that, that's that's just how you. That's how we'll naturally talk about what's going on in front of us around animals. You know. Yeah. Or that bear is nervous about that other bear. You know, you just talk about it like you're watching interactions, and so. Uh, you know, I try to invite that level of looking at. I try to invite that level of looking at the outdoors and the way of looking at wilderness because I think it makes you it it helps you be more connected to it. Gives you a reference. Yeah, it helps you yeah. be more connected to it. I watched a video today of a wild goat that was breeding with a what do you call a female wild goat? Nanny. Yeah, yeah, Billy's and nannies. Yeah, and then uh, um. Yeah, Billy's and Andy's. The wild goat was breeding with this female wild goat, and right next to him, like 20 feet away, was another wild goat breeding with another female goat. And this guy dismounts, runs (laughs) over, and knocks that goat over. Just charges in the the middle of sex and just blasts this other goat and knocks him down. Sure. It's like, no, no, no. I'm the only one who gets to fuck. (laughs) So... So there's some kind of jealousy going yeah, on with so goats. I would love I would love to watch that play out with my kids. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the things I like about it too is you can wind up uh God, you can talk about rich stuff. Yeah. You know, watching it. You can talk about rich stuff with kids, man. Watching animals, you know. Oh yeah, there's so much to talk about. I mean, that world is so fascinating and you know, for many people, you get a little taste of it from doc- documentaries, maybe a little internet clip here or there. 
or you know you see animals at the zoo. You have mm. very little exposure to what it what it's like to be around them in real life. You know, I didn't spend a lot. I mean, I, I fished when I was younger, but I didn't spend a lot of time um, in the wild uh, near wild animals. And I remember when you and I went on that first trip to Montana, the the moment where uh, I shot that buck, which was the first animal I've ever killed. And that moment where, like, I locked eyes on it, and we're in the wild, and you see this thing, and it was a totally unusual experience. I remember thinking, like, this is almost like bizarrely, almost like psychedelic, because the world, this world, is so different than any other aspect of the world. The world where you're you're sneaking up on an animal. You're trying to be undetected. It spots you. You look at them. You know what's up. They kind of know something's wrong. And you're like locked into this completely different vibration of existence. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, but this is very bizarre. This is a very bizarre state. It's a state of mind. And I feel like it's also a, like a very bizarre state of mind that's recognizable. It's like a little door that you didn't even know you had in your room, in, in your house. Like, what's in this door? Yep. And you open the door like, oh, this is the hunter door. You didn't even know you had that door. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you're in there. I, I equate it with people. I tell people all the time. I go, you know that feeling that you get when you go fishing? Most people know that feeling. When you catch a fish and everything just gets excited. Like, oh, 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 oh. That is a feeling that's like deeply embedded in the human reward system. There's something that tells you this, this is a great thing. Because now you are going to catch a fish, and that fish is going to feed your family. You're going to exist. You're going to live. You're going to thrive. Whereas if you didn't catch a fish, you didn't get anything. Yeah. It's an almost illogical lighting up of your system. Oh, it speaks to me in a big way. And a bit, everybody, to everyone. To kids, it does. Yeah. You know, um, my youngest, I, I took her fishing when she was like five years old. She caught a uh, six-pound bass, fucking huge bass. For her and she's like holding this thing like the the look on her face the excitement of it all it's like it does something to people that is like deeply ingrained in us you know it, it just ignites this thing that's a part of you that you didn't know was there i think as well you get uh in observing wildlife being around wildlife trying to get up on it and kill it at times man you get invited into just a different uh pacing yeah. When I was, we have a youth deer season. So I was hunting youth deer season with my kids this year. And we watched a deer. He was quite a ways off. But he had climbed up into view and was standing on this little ridge. And something caught it. He was going away from us, probably six, 700 yards away. And he climbed up this ridge and something caught his attention on the other side of the ridge. And he locked up. I mean, locked up, locked up standing there not like he not, he didn't get into a position where he decided he was comfortable he just froze his step because something caught his attention and that deer for didn't move i mean didn't move a foot for 22 minutes wow it, it didn't was... move it it didn't move its head it didn't move its feet it stood exactly dead still for 22 minutes you think it was like a mountain lion or something? I have no idea. It was too far away. He just knew something was that caught his eye and held that position without settling in. And then at 22 minutes, it looked left. 
That's so bad. I'm not kidding you. When it got dark and we left, that deer was still standing there. But he wow. looked left. He broke his gaze. And you're like, and then to, to be tangled up in that, it's like, wow, man, just the level of perception yeah. and concentration and focus and the way that time, it's so hard to understand how time moves. You can't understand how time moves for stuff. You know, you'll find in the wintertime, you'll find where a grouse will get snowed on. So it's already in, in its place. And then it snows a foot. And so you'll jump the grouse out of the snow. There's no tracks leading to where it was. It snowed on it. It stayed there, sometimes for days. And we'll have dozens of pellets, dozens of shit pellets underneath it. And then busts out of the snow and flies away. And it had been where it was sitting. It got snowed on, covered in snow, waited there, shat I don't know how many times over how many days, and then poof, flies out of there. Just the passage of time. The passage of time, you can't even begin to understand it. Imagine that existence where every minute of every day you're wondering if something's going to eat you. Yeah, I don't know. I'd love to get into it for a minute. I'd love <laughs> to get into it for a minute. Which animal would you I'd love you to like understand, into? like if you could understand for a bull or a buck or whatever, like how they feel, like how they feel sexual desire. Like mm. what does it feel like? Is it mostly comp, is it like mostly, com- is it mostly a competitive feeling? Mm. Do you know I mean, is it mostly competition? I don't think it's like, um, I don't know. Is it, I don't think it's passion. <laughs> you know, like, right. What does it feel like? Well, it's definitely not how, you know, it's not love. That's probably one of the weird things about human animals as opposed to other animals is that our, our sex is intertwined with compassion and love. Yeah, for, for the vast majority of people, yes. Yeah. For the vast majority of people, yes. Whereas with them, it's a pure desire to spread the DNA. Mm-hmm. At all costs. Yeah, at all costs. Or mostly all costs. Yeah, it's got to be wild. No, it's I'd love to no. uh, Bulls in the rut, and especially when you consider that it only happens once a year. Yeah. That's got to be insane. Where this overwhelming urge, all year round, they're not horny at all. Yeah. They don't even engage in any kind of sexual satisfaction at all. And then September rolls around, and shit gets wild. Yeah, got blue balls by then. <laughs> Just... But it's just strange how nature works, how it coincides with the seasons so that the, the, you know, the calves will be born in the spring. And it's, it's so weird. Have you read Dan Flory's new book? No, I haven't heard about I've, I've heard about it, rather, no. but I haven't read it. Wild New World. He contacted me the other day. I joked with him where when I was reading it, I want to make an annotated version where I have commentary, where I do all the footnotes. <laughs> Because I want to be like, well, yeah, but I mean, you know, you also got to consider this. The whole time reading the book, I'm like, yeah, but Dan, you can't say that without saying this. What is the What is the premise of the book? Well, okay, it, it's a the, the premise. It's the story. So his new book, Wild New World, is a history of human animal interactions, and it basically begins with the Chicxulub strike. Okay, Chicxulub. Yeah, it's a great word. I didn't know the word until I read his book. The Chicxulub strike. It's the impact strike in the um, it's the impact strike in the Yucatan. Oh, that, that kills the dinosaurs. Killed the dinosaurs. Okay, so it begins with the Chicxulub strike because what he's trying to do is trying to find a place to get into the the American menagerie. Okay, American wildlife. Mm. So he just starts there. 
Oh. Where you have, you know, you, you kind of like wipe the slate clean, right? And you, and you bring in, because he's trying to, he's trying to explain like how does North America have its bestiary? And he just finds that as a good place to enter the narrative about how we have the animals we have, where we got the American bestiary from. Um, and it covers up until like yesterday. It, it, it covers up to like the wolf reintroduction, the, the battle, the current battle over wolf reintroduction. So mm. it just is a story of humans and humans and wildlife in America. Um, he spent he, he spends a lot of time on some things that, that, that I interviewed him at a bookstore and, and um he's I, I was kind of busting his balls about some things he does in the book that I didn't like but uh areas where I disagreed with him but he spends a lot of time on um not a lot of time toward the end he, he talks a lot about the individuality in animals okay hmm us not having room or us not sort of like humans not allowing space for individualities in animals right and i think at one point he talks about his dog he's like this this there's no other dog like this dog there's no other dog that knows what this dog knows there's no other dog that has the history this dog has there's no other dog that processes the information around it in the way that this dog processes the information around it why would we not extend that same thing to animals in the wild? Mm. See, yeah, we would have to. You can't. You can't ignore the question, right? You can't ignore the question, right? There has to be individuality amongst wild species. I think some have tremendous individuality, and I have to feel that some don't have as much. <laughs> like maybe trout. <laughs> yeah, like the, the, yeah. On the on the if you put on a spectrum like microbial, for, forget microbial life. If you put it on a spectrum. Um, Colony insects, okay. So like the ants in the colony, I'd be like that has to be pretty low individual. <laughs> like I'm guessing lower individuality up to animals that live in social hierarchies, like really fine tuned social hierarchies. You have to be like that's high levels of individuality. Mm -hmm. No one's gonna look and say that a chimp doesn't that, that chimps don't have high levels of individuality, right? Because you got these animals that have like these known personal histories, right? Right? They got like they've conducted quests, you know. So that. Like reading the book, it's um, part of me, me making the joke that I wanted to make a, a version where I do all the, the footnote commentary is it's like there's a lot of shit in there that a hunter, there's a lot of shit in there a hunter can't ignore in the book about the role of hunting and extinctions, right? Um, lots, of, lots to unpack, man. And, and even the role of like hunter-based, he even talks a lot about hunter-based conservation, Okay. Where you'd be like, you know, so you kind of want there to be a lot of elk so you can kill them? Right. And you're like, yeah. Like, honestly, that's a part of it. It's a small part of it, and it doesn't explain it all, but sure, that's there. That's there. It's definitely a factor. It's there. Like, I, like other predators, like to see a prey-rich landscape. Do I need to apologize? I don't think so. No. But it, but it, but it's not. It's well, not the everything. If you are apologizing, you're apologizing to people that don't have that experience and don't understand what you're saying. Yeah. You know, we we apply individuality to specific animals like Cecil the lion. Sure. You know, or or uh, El Jefe, that jaguar. Yeah. That makes its way into America occasionally. Yeah. I was reading an article about El Jefe yesterday, and they were saying that El Jefe has been eating bears. Oh. Cause really? They, yeah, because bears don't know what a jaguar is, mm -hmm. so they don't know to be scared of it, and they they were 
making this uh, – they're, they're supposing that maybe the Bears would be even curious. They would get near the Jaguar. Oh, yeah, because they have probably some kind of point of reference with mountain lions and it doesn't pan out. Yeah, they're like, what is that fucking thing? Have you followed the, the Jaguar debate that's going on right now? No. Um, it's a great one, man. So defining it, – it's one of it, – Jag – okay, where I back up. I'm going to tell you an imper- – like I'm going to tell you something that's like objectively true. Okay. Okay. It's objectively true that we had a population of jaguars in the United States of America um, up until the 1800s, right? It's just, they just were. What's debated is, uh, uh, was it, how, how stable was it? How widespread was it? Some people would point to, well, like basically limited to Southern Arizona. Some people would look and, and be, well, West Texas, New Mexico, Southern Arizona. What about members of the Coronado expedition drawing a distinction between lions and jaguars all the way up like toward the Platte River? Okay. Like why would they say both? Mm. You know what I mean? Like they're what are they confusing? Where's the Platte River? Oh, so in the in the in the more in the southern plains, the southern Great Plains of the United States, flowing across Kansas. Okay. Oh, wow. Where you have instances of people mentioning things that you sort of like looking at you like, man, they got, if they weren't talking about Jaguar, what the hell are they talking about? How do they describe it? Leopards. Mm. Okay. And, and a lot of times someone will say there'll be a reference to a large cat and you can't rule out, well, maybe in the historic record, they're probably talking about mountain lions. But what do you do in a case where you have a historic record and someone is in some oddball place, Southern Colorado, and they're talking about, they have lions and leopards. Oh, wow. And lions and leopards. So it's like, I guess we're talking, I mean, they got to be, they have to be referring to jaguars. Right. W- much more widely dispersed. So as, as people get into talking about jaguar recovery, of which I'm a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a proponent with an asterisk. Like, when, when people get talking about jaguar recovery, you have to define what that looks like. And there are some who would say Jaguar recovery in North America as a collaborative effort between us, Mexico, Belize, whoever else has rolled into this Jaguar recovery plan. Jaguar recovery in North America would mean recovering them across core habitat. Okay, that's a term you hear all the time, like core habitat. So then you got to argue over what is the line? What's core habitat for Jaguars? And some people will argue, and, and many of them have motivation. Some of them are honest. Some of them have other kind of you know political motivation to say that core habitat is not Arizona. That was always fringe. Stray males, one or two here and there, long periods of absence. It wasn't core habitat. Other people would argue that Arizona was absolutely core habitat. And if we're going to restore jaguars in core habitat, we're going to be restoring jaguars in some portion of the lower 48. Mm. Meaning, eventually, and, and, and recovery would look a couple ways. One is like protections. And you would watch how jaguars are able to flow back and forth across the border. A, a big question around jaguar recovery is the border wall. Okay, how much would uh, how much would a border wall impact large mammal movements? So that's an aspect. 
if we don't allow recovery in that way, or we make recovery in that way difficult, do we truck Jaguars up and turn them loose in Arizona, New Mexico, mm. West Texas? Really? You're going to turn them loose? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I love it, it dude. I, I love them, and I honestly don't think... Um, you know, they, they, they like live in such low population abundances and they have such huge home ranges. I don't think it would ever be that there was like a Jaguar problem. <laughs> There's no like Jaguar problem. Yeah. I don't think that you're going to have people, right. you know, the case where, where, you know, you might recover wolves in some area and, and lose two thirds of the elk, like seemingly overnight. I just, I can't picture that that's, I think you'd lose a lot of lions. You'd lose a lot of mountain lions, probably. But do you think they'd be forced out, or do you think due to predation? I think that probably a common. I think a combination of both, like them killing them and then just range reduction because of this big cat. But dude, I like I'm I'm a conflict averse enough where I don't want. It's like trucking them in to me is way in the future. Um, and man, it would be a political battle, and mm. you'd make a spotted owl out of the jaguar. Mm. you'd have some level of people that just came to hate them sons of bitches because they were a, a symbol of federal overreach. But them just coming across the border, I think, is a great way. It's a great thing to root for. Well, they I think love them. That's where they think El Jefe is coming through. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why they call him El Jefe. He may, manages to make his way through the wall. Yeah. And there's it, – but it's, you know, for a Jaguar to come hanging out in the U.S., it's, it's uh, you know, it's a dicey life. I don't think he knows. No, no, of course he doesn't. No, no, of course he doesn't. No, but (laughs) you wind up. uh, There's not like a great in in recent decades. There's not a great likelihood of finding of establishing a habitat and having a female to breed with. Right. What's the what's a big leopard or jaguar? A big jaguar. I don't know. I don't know. So I don't know what their max weight is. A big mountain lion, like the high end, is like what? A couple hundred pounds. Man, a lot of people like to say that. You know, people are like two hundred pound lion. Uh, They. If they have a belly full of meat, you know, if they have a belly full of meat, they get up to into the 170s. But I had a guy, so I had a conversation one time with a researcher in Oregon who did a, a long, he was a large, he was a large carnivore biologist in Oregon. And he told me that he weighed over 300 of them on digital scales. The biggest one he ever weighed that didn't have a belly distended with meat. The biggest one he ever weighed was 164. Interesting. But he said, but, you know, when you get into these bigger numbers, he says, is it like, is it so uh, full that he can't barely get through the woods and climb a tree? Because you can get some good weights then. When right. he's got, if he's got 30, you know, because he, he can have 30 pounds of meat. They can eat 30 pounds Yeah, of he meat. can have 20 to 30 pounds imagine of meat in his gut. Imagine that's your size. And they, he eats, 30 imagine pounds, yeah. you eating 30 pounds of meat. Yeah. Because that's essentially your size. And so when people get into a lot of these crazy weights, it's because of that. But he's talking uh, about, they're just like, they don't. You know, they can get big, they can get have a big live weight, but if you empty the stomach on them and weigh them, they're not like that. But I think, like, but I think that having a 250 pound Jaguar is approachable. Mm. They're so big. You, so it's 100 pounds bigger. Yeah. And they're like, you, you, you have to look up. I don't want to be quoted on the highest. Uh, Let's look. I don't want to be quoted on the biggest poundage ever found on a Jaguar, but God, they're fascinating. I've only ever seen their tracks, man. I haven't seen one. I came, I was minutes from seeing one one time. Where? In in Guyana, we went and pat. We went and checked out this sandbar where these uh, giant river turtles were laying their eggs. And I was with some 
I was with some guys and they were indigenous and they go and uh, dig eggs. Okay. So they went to get some eggs to eat and you could see where the jaguars had been digging up nests, egg nests, and also probably hunting the turtles on the beach. We left, went around the bend to camp. Some of these guys went back to take a bath at the beach and they went back and the jaguar was standing back there again. I'd never seen one though, personally. One of my favorite videos is watching jaguars eat caimans. Oh my God. Sneaking up on crocodiles. Swam across, grab, yeah. No, it's great. They're crazy animals. That I would have had no idea until the internet came around. I had no idea that that was a commonplace occurrence. Mm-hmm. That that's part of the menu. Oh, they're wild, man. So here it says males are heavier than females. Males can weigh from 126 to 250 pounds. Females can weigh 100 to 200 pounds, according to the Denver Zoo. Hmm. You know what else I wanted to talk to you about is you sent me a thing about the, you sent me that buck, a picture of that buck. Which one? The Rampala buck. Which one is that? It's called the Rampala buck. Was that the the buck where the guy faked it? Well. No? Maybe. I want to do a documentary on it, dude. So let's explain that to people. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I kept wanting to talk to you about yeah. it when I came on your show because it's such a fascinating story. Yeah. I'm like, so in 98, it was 98. Maybe Jamie could pull a picture of this deer. In 1998. There it is. There it is. Yeah, that's him. So it's, it's a crazy story about this deer. Now, a little bit. So this is this this is, takes place in Michigan in 1998. Now, the the biggest white-tailed deer, the biggest typical white-tailed deer in the world is this deer called uh, the Hanson Bucker. Milo Hanson killed the biggest white-tailed, typical white-tailed deer in the world. Okay. I think the Hanson buck was the the Milo Hanson buck was killed in the eighties, if I'm not mistaken. Um, There's it's the Milo a, Hanson buck. There it is. Man, that's a big buck. Yep, Canada. No, when you look at these pictures, notice uh, when you look at the Milo Hanson buck, you want to notice a couple things about it. When you look at all these giant bucks, you'll want to notice how the burrs are positioned on top of his head, like how much space is between those burrs. And you want to notice, like, on these giant, giant bucks, the presence of little extra points and little points here and there and shit. So, anyways, this guy, Milo Hansen, kills this in, in Canada. He kills this world record typical whitetail. We just had in our podcast the guy, the Huff Buck, where a guy in, in Indiana just killed the biggest typical whitetail in the U.S. But he didn't beat, he didn't beat the Hansen Buck. How big is the Huff Buck? I can't remember what the Huff Buck was. It was two plus. Ooh, look at the size oh, of that thing. Unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. Didn't beat the Hanson Buck. I'll talk about the Huff Buck too, as I tell you about like controversy around the Huff Buck that, that is like not there anymore, but controversy to merge. So is this guy, Mitch Rompala, is this Michigan bow hunter. And weirdly, like my old man knew Mitch Rompala. Because my dad used to measure bucks. Um, and he would measure bucks for this place called Commemorative Bucks of Michigan, and Mitch Ron Powell was involved in Commemorative Bucks of Michigan. But one day, he, I think it was mid-November, Mitch Ron Powell in Traverse City, Michigan, um, kills a buck that's going to beat, that, that clearly smokes the Hanson buck in size. Anytime something like that happens, there's like a lot of questions about, is it legit, is it real? So... Uh, one thing that becomes readily apparent is just the buck looks weird. Okay. Like his antler configuration is weird. Um, he calls some When you pe- say weird, what do you mean by that? Just a weird configuration. How absolutely perfect it is. 
how the burrs sit on its head. Notice how the burrs seem to be coming out the side of its head. Mm. Yeah. How it's tipped out. Okay. Yeah. So he gets this buck and it's going to beat the Hanson buck, but there's a thing that he won't do. He won't let it be x-rayed. And what does he say when they say we we want to x-ray it? Well, he first off, he comes forward with the buck. He's a very private person. Okay. So everybody already knows he's a very private person. He comes forward with the buck. And it's more like everybody else is saying that this buck is going to beat the Hanson buck. And then all these theories start to emerge that he had fabricated the rack, that he had access to a deer farm. So he was able to make this perfect rack. And people are looking at the photo of the buck and its ear droops funny. There's blood in weird places. The antlers seem to be not colored quite correctly. And there's this idea that he killed a buck, for real, cut open its hide on its head, took a fabricated buck rack on a skull plate and and attached it. Whoa. However, a tribal game warden sees it at his house, doesn't see anything fishy about it, and some guys come to officially measure the buck, just like in the picture you saw. They officially measure the buck, but they never examine the skull plate. All those people say... These eyewitnesses are like, I didn't see anything wrong with that buck. But he won't put the buck, he won't enter the buck into the record books. Citing like a disagreement with the record books over some stuff. And he's like, and a lot of people kill deer and don't enter them in the record books. People are also looking and like, a big buck like that's never come out. There's no big bucks in Traverse City. Like, how's this guy kill this big buck where there's no big bucks? And people are like, yeah, but these giant bucks are freaks. Like, no, you don't kill multiple 200-inch whitetails in one spot. But you'd be like, well, you kill a bunch of 170s and 180s and 190s. It does look weird. Well, that's another one. What's that one? Well, that's where the story starts getting rich. So, oh, no. So check this out. But I, it's, it, it, this is the reason I want to make a documentary about this. It's legitimately unsolved. Milo Hansen. The guy that has the handsome buck, he makes a lot of money renting his buck out to buck shows. <laughs> this is no joke, dude. Like, why, like uh, you know, like you'll have like uh, uh, um, trade shows. Not trade shows, but like public sporting goods shows. Gun shows, state sporting goods shows, whatever. Um, the people that organize it will pay to have the handsome buck on display. Mm. But suddenly, the Hanson buck isn't a hot ticket commodity anymore because everyone knows that the Ron Pollock buck beat the Hanson buck. So now he's seeing his rentals go down because, like, <laughs> you're not the biggest buck. We can't get the biggest buck because he doesn't want to show anybody, but you're not the biggest buck. They go to Ron Pollock and they have a non monetary settlement in Mitch Ron under threat of lawsuit. Mitch Rompala agrees in a non-monetary settlement that he will stop saying his buck is bigger than the Hanson buck. Why would you do that? Then people are like, just get the buck x-rayed. Just get it x-rayed. Two people in individual, two individuals in Michigan come forward and say, I'll give you $10,000 to let me x-ray that buck. He wouldn't Whoa. take the money. Then he says... And a lot of his friends think that this is like his legitimate response and this makes total sense. Then he says, fuck it. I'm not showing anyone the fucking buck. I'm done talking about it. Not why I hunt. 
I don't want to talk about it. Some years go by, and it's put to rest sort of by someone saying it burned up in a house fire anyway. A lot of his friends are like, dude, that's totally a Mitch move. That's what Mitch would do. People also like try to make a big deal out of a criminal record he had to demonstrate dishonesty. But here's the other thing is he then establishes a website, and in the following years, weirdly, posts like the picture you just pulled up, posts a bunch more bucks that have the same look. What? That super wide, crazy look. The website's now gone. But he then, over the course of years, keeps shooting these crazy-looking bucks, which no one else in Traverse City is killing. And then, But he says, but that's not why I hunt. And people are like, if that's not why you hunt, why do you still have the website with all these crazy bucks that look like homemade bucks? Oh, wow. So he eventually just go, he like vanishes from the public eye. And you got to understand, there is there is like... There's generational wealth attached to killing the world's biggest whitetail. Really? Oh, yeah. Like, it could be leveraged. Like, like that Hanson buck, the amount of just endorsements and the never-ending, like, display stuff. When, when Dustin Huff, the kid that just killed that the new uh, record, there you go. Home of the Hanson buck. World record whitetail deer. Scoring 213 and 5.8. Five wow. Oh, 93. So he killed it in 93. Wow. And the Rompala buck was uh the Rompala buck was ninety eight. So big bucks were in the air. Dustin Huff, when he killed his buck, what's funny about him, so we had him on the podcast. He kills a big buck in Indiana. He has no idea the buck's there. He's just out hunting. And there it is. Other guys in the area knew, but none of, no one was talking to anybody. No one would tell anybody this big buck was there. And he kills this big buck. He right away, kind of knowing how shit goes when you kill a big buck, he it's so funny, he right away calls the DNR. In Indiana, get someone on the phone. He's like, hey, man, I just killed a huge buck. I just want to tell everybody, and I want to get it all squared away that I killed this huge buck. No one will call him back. Then the rumors start flying. He poached it. He's not actually a resident. He did this. He did that. Game wardens call him up. We understand you killed a big buck. I tried to tell you I killed a big buck. <laughs> <laughs> so now, after the fact, they want they come out and do like a site inspection, and he puts all the, he puts all the hysteria to rest. And then sold the buck for an undisclosed amount of money. Sold it? Yeah, oh yeah. I'm sure it was a lot of money. Like, what's a lot of money for selling a buck? Oh, I would, I, he won't say. We pressed him on it. He won't say. The only thing, I know one little detail about the buyer, which once I heard the detail about the buyer, I think I found who it was. Like, I think I know who it was. But um, he had, he probably around for that buck because it's not the world's biggest it has to be he wouldn't say but like guys i know that know or it has to be a six-figure deal really yeah probably he won't he won't put it to rest or i think one of our guys that i work with real close spencer i think spencer maybe spencer came in and made a guess at 80 because he kind of he reports on that kind of stuff so that that's not the generational wealth thing but like the biggest the biggest is a thing that, like, y- your kids, if that record stands, like, your kids will enjoy the benefits of, of that deer. 95, it says that handsome buck was worth up to a million dollars. Wow. Just, that's, you know, 30 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe I was that's full of shit. Gap. Maybe, when yeah, I was, yeah, maybe I was full like, of shit when I said generational buck. I made 600K a year. I don't know how accurate that is either. Huh. We should explain to people that are uneducated about this or uninformed how 
bizarre the world of whitetail hunting is. There's like nothing else. Because for people that don't grow up around it and don't understand it, I follow a lot of people on YouTube that have bucks and they're all named. Mm -hmm. They have target bucks. And so what these people will do is they'll set up food plots. They have these large chunks of land. They've invested shit tons of money yeah. into creating habitat that would attract these deer. And this is not it's not fenced in. This is just wild farmland. And in this farmland, like in Kansas and Iowa in particular and some of these other states, these folks will set up food plots well, they'll grow alfalfa and apple trees and all these different things that they feel, and specifically just to attract bucks. And then they set up cameras. So they have these camera traps everywhere. And nowadays they have camera traps that are attached to cell phones. Mm-hmm. So these camera traps, they'll send you a photo trail on cams. your trail cams. Yeah. They'll, they'll send you a photo. Scientists call them camera traps. Yeah. Everybody else calls them trail cams. I'm thinking of uh, <laughs> sure. uh, Bondo apes. That's where I, oh, we yeah. get to that. Um, so they get photos sent to their phone. Like, ding, got a notification. Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. So it'll be like 1 o'clock in the morning. Their phone dings by the bed. They'll pick it up, and they'll say, oh, my God, he's nocturnal. Oh, but dude, it's the most addictive thing in the world, they'll man. They'll call one superstar, and sure. one's, one's the, the gunfighter, and they have all these <laughs> names for these these bucks. And, and yeah. there's all these documentary-style videos on YouTube of these various big buck hunters who have dead—guys like Lee Lukowski. He's, yeah. like, one of the most famous ones, who has this enormous farm in Iowa. They and, have a target buck. Yeah, they and don't. Lee will pass on 170-inch bucks. Sure giant, huge trophy bucks that any normal person would be very excited. He wants them to grow bigger. And then there's competition with neighborhood farms because this buck will travel to other places, wherever the gals are or wherever the food is. So they're trying to attract them to get them into this area. And these guys will hunt for day in, day out, 30, 40 days in a row, however long the season is, just stay up in that tree stand, just freezing their dick off, all day long. I was reading this one account. This guy was talking about how it was the most frustrating season ever because he went like 40 days in the stand, never even drew his bow back, never even saw a deer that he could shoot. But he was to talk about like this is what he loves about whitetail hunting yep. is that if on the 39th day a whopper could walk right through, a 200-inch buck, and he would shoot it. But that this is an obsession with that part of the world that is l- largely unknown. Like I remember one time when I was on the road, I was, uh, I, I think I was in Nashville, or it might have been Atlanta, and I uh, went and did this local radio station. They were talking about NASCAR, and they were talking about this guy and that guy, and did you hear about that and that? I'm like, this is a world that I've never even heard of. Like, you guys are excited about a guy who races a car in a circle? For real? <laughs> but they, they knew everybody. Yes, they are. <laughs> they knew everybody, and it was the local obsession. That is what it's like in the world of, you know, Midwest big game whitetail hunting like that, yeah that's all that's that's all happened in my lifetime really oh yeah like that the the i mean whitetail have always been like they are the most hunted in terms of man hours not the most harvested thing but in terms of man hours they are the most hunted animal in america you can hunt whitetails in most states there's only a few exceptions where you can't hunt whitetails um they have a relatively small home range, so you can kind of uh, 
have one stay close and nearby. They do really well with humans, meaning uh, development, agriculture. These things don't bother them. In fact, it seems to be helpful. They like edge habitats. So they like where like agriculture and woods and you know housing developments, golf courses. None of this shit really seems to phase them like it does a lot of other highly sensitive wildlife. So you can just live and and be in deer country, and most people live in deer country. And for most people, it's the biggest thing around. Um, And you can have, like, this very long-term immersive experience with them. You know, Clay Newcomb, uh, he recently did a Bear Grease podcast about a buck he was obsessed with for many years. And then it got killed by some guy on a neighboring property who just got, like, shit lucky. Right. And Clay is like mourning about this and eventually brings this guy the shed antlers. He had found like he had over multiple years found the matching sets of shed antlers from this deer and the pictures and eventually gets over his mourning and does a podcast episode about he actually the guy is on the podcast. He goes to the guy and be like, I need to talk to you about your deer. And the guy didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't know if he was going to get in a fight or what when Clay came and did that. But he said, there's a thing or two I need to tell you about that buck he killed. <laughs> and lays wow. out. That he's been, that, like, he's, he has five years into this deer. Wow. How old was the deer? I can't remember when the guy killed it. Seven years old or something like that. But Clay had early on, I might get some of the details wrong, but Clay had early on flagged it as this unusual, like this buck with this unusual antler configuration. And he watched it get bigger and then had a bad year and got smaller. And Clay thought, well, he's, you know, they'll always, like, if they live long, they'll fade. You know, whatever. At six years, he'll throw the biggest rack he's ever going to throw. And then he'll have a couple bad years before he dies. This buck throws a shitty rack, but then comes out of it and throws a bigger rack. And just when you're questioning whether Clay's actually looking at the proper buck, the buck's got leg injuries, which makes it like a one, you know, a one in a million leg injury array front and rear so you can always tell the buck he's got like growths on his legs that you can just know that that's absolutely the buck and he's obsessed about the buck and then some guy rent a guy rents a house and decides to go out hunting behind the house and shoots the buck wow you know it's a funny story similar to that we had a turkey researcher on and uh they were studying how turkeys evade predation human predation and they had a turkey that they actually started giving its coordinates to hunters. Being like, here's where the turkey is right now. Here's where he's roosted. Try to get him. Right? And they'd be able to watch the hunter on a tracking device, and they could watch the turkey on a tracking device. And they'd just watch how these turkeys just juke people. And they'd even put good turkey hunters on them, and good turkey hunters couldn't kill them. One day a guy gets, a, gets in a fight with his wife, storms out of the house, Drives down the road, gets to the game management area sign, pulls over to the side of the road, walks off in the woods, sits against the tree to cool off, and kills that turkey. Wow. <laughs> Shit locked into it. Shit locked into it. But so, it was like, so anyways, this buck, Clay's like obsessed with the buck. Because like I said, you can live with it that way. And and there's not a lot of animals you're gonna there's not a lot of animals you can have that experience with. Where you see them over and over and over again. You grow up with them. What you can be like at any point in time. Like, uh, at any point in time, you could sort of, like, walk out your door and, like, kind of sweep your hand and be like, he's there somewhere right now. Do you have a conflicted view of what I would call almost like, it's almost like free-range deer farming? 
because if you're providing mm. them with all this food and then you're keeping an eye on them with trail cams that send you digital images through cell phone signals and you're you know you're tracking their location and you're you you make it so that you lure them in there i mean it obviously no. it no. requires a lot of resources no i don't no i don't i don't mean conflicted but i mean I, I shouldn't say conflicted like you shouldn't do it. What I, what I mean is like is what it, are the pros it, and cons? Is it different? Because it's di- it's definitely different than if you go into the mountains and you know you stumble upon a giant mule deer, yeah. and you track them and you hunt them and you kill them. That is a deer that you you know might have seen the day before or something like that. But this is not an animal that you have a relationship with, and you certainly didn't lure him into that area yep. with a food plot and you know apples and yep. shit. It's different. It's different. But if you look at, if you're measuring it on, if you measure human knowledge and, and let's say we're going to measure it in bits, okay, and we're going to uh, we're going to measure output, we're going to measure human output in calories or whatever, okay, the bits of information required to successfully do that on a piece of land. And the calories required to successfully do that on a piece of land are enormous and far outweigh the bits of information and calories expelled to um, get a deer in many other kinds of circumstances. Different skill sets. Like, I, I don't feel any personal desire to have a place where I grow big whitetails. Because to me, they don't, they're not as mysterious to me as they are to some people. However, the most productive chunks of privately owned ground that I know about from a biological standpoint are chunks of ground that people are managing as recreational properties for for wildlife and hunting. You can't, if you're going to sit and say that you support there being wildlife habitat and you support private land conservation. You can't then sit and say that the, that the that the person who's maximizing wildlife output on their property is somehow like, you know, a cheater, not oh, I'm doing not, it right. I'm definitely not because holy that. shit, they do they do phenomenal wildlife work and and it's trickle down. And you could again, we talked about this earlier. You could look and be like, oh, you're just doing that so you can kill that deer. Well, okay, sure, but the number of songbirds, the number of pollinators. The number of even predators, other things that, that thrive on some of these properties that are managed to be like quiet deer producing machines. Um, ecologically, there's a lot going on there. Yes. Uh, I personally, man, like like I think, and I'm raising my kids to feel the same way. Mule deer are a thousand times cooler than whitetails. Why? Because they're just mysterious. They're more mysterious. They're more mysterious. They're mysterious. more sensitive. They're more sensitive. They're more mysterious. I just, I just think How that they're are they much more cooler. Sensitive? In what way? Um, you know, I was saying that whitetails love people. In general, mule deer don't. But they do in Colorado. You know, you can always. I know. It's in like, Boulder, I pulled over to the side of the road. There was a giant buck. Yes. And I pulled the car over, and I was showing my kids, and we got out. We're like, look, 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 look. It was like right yeah. there. It's a, it's like this is a hurdle you wind up talking about. This is a hurdle you encounter when you're talking about <laughs> mule deer because people will always be able to say, well, there's mule deer laying in my yard. Yeah. There's mule deer at the golf course. Um, with hu- As an area gets colonized by humans, as areas become colonized by humans, 
um, those areas become better for whitetails, and you'll see more whitetails. Okay. The inverse is true with mule deer. Mm. You can find, you can find, be like, well, there's some on the golf course. But like, if you look at like pieces of habitat, one of the reasons that it's bad for mule deer is because it's because it's good for whitetails. Mm. Whitetails are less sensitive and they can outcompete mule deer and white, or sorry, elk and whitetails outcompete mule deer. What mule deer just more sensitive? They're more sensitive to everything going on around them. Mm. They're less likely to not want to go to an area. Um, they're they're when places have been developed, it, it like doesn't work well for them in the long run. Um, I just think, and I think they look cooler. They're and, definitely and we, cool. And we become custom to like, uh, I prefer to eat them. Really? Yeah, because I like that. You know, uh, whatever people identify as gamey, I prefer. Uh, like, you know, even my wife who doesn't give like, she doesn't care about mule deer racks. Like, if I try to show her like, look at the size of this mule deer I got, she'd be like, oh, it looks like all the other mule deer. I don't, you know, who cares? But she prefers to eat mule deer meat. I just like, I like everything about everything about them. I like better. I like the places they live in. They're wilder. Um, they're less sort of touched. You can go to certain areas and, and you might be the first person. You can look at mule deer now and then and be like, you know, considering that he's only three, four, five, six years old, I might be the only person who's ever laid eyes on that thing. Mm. That's plausible. Right. You know? And then there's places where big mule deer become a, a trophy obsession. Oh, of like course. There's places that it's, are extremely difficult to hunt, like the Arizona Strip. Yep. Where people become obsessed with getting a tag for the Arizona Strip. I drew I drew this year probably the best tag in Idaho. Mm, Idaho's another place, right? Yep. What was it like? Unbelievable. Yeah? Unbelievable. I never had... It, it, it's almost like you, you got to be careful not to let it ruin you. Really? Yeah. I'll, I mean, I'll never draw it again. I shouldn't say I'll never draw it again. I might not ever draw Did it again. Did you get a buck? Yeah. Second day. Really? But, but... I had some friends that really hit it hard during archery season, and they scoured that place. And so, and talking to my friends, they're like, I would think real seriously about checking here, here, and here. <laughs> so they were the wrong which spots. I, which, no, no, no. No, they were telling me coming into it for rifle season. They oh. had said to me, I would like. Oh, so they helped you. Yeah, they're like, you know, I would look there. I would look there. I would look there. I would not bother looking there, mm. which was hugely beneficial to my experience. Well, I wound up getting one that they didn't know about. I got one that they didn't that they hadn't found out about, but it helped me be in the it helped me be very like it helped me rule out if I had just done it off maps, I probably would have spent I probably would have spent time in some places that they were like I wouldn't look there. I would be looking here for this reason. And so I started looking there. I found the bucks that they knew about and then pretty quickly found a buck they hadn't even known about. The big one? Nice one. You got a picture? Yeah. Send it to Jamie. Real nice one. Airdrop that sucker. Real nice one. Hold on a minute here. <laughs> Have you ever hunted the Arizona Strip? Nope. But I uh, certainly would. That's supposed to be the spot, right? Yeah. I mean, they it, get fucking giant mule deer there, right? Yeah. It's like, a real famous spot. I've never hunted. I got a lot of friends that have, but I don't know enough about it. How do I send it? I don't know how to send it. Airdrop it. Oh, okay. What is like a 
oh, world record I mule deer. I gotta focus a long time to be able to do something like okay. this. <laughs> no people found. Turn your shit on, man. Oh, there you are. Sorry. <laughs> Go through. It's going. What is a world record mule deer? Oh, I don't know what the world record. I don't know what the biggest it's quite mule a bit deer bigger, is. Right? If you can get a, like a real freaking wow, giant, yeah, that's a big buck. No, that was nice. Wow. No, that was nice. I got. I've gotten one bigger in the past. Also, oh no, I got one bigger in the past in a general unit one time. But um, that was a li- that's a limited draw unit. It's, and dude, we would have found a. I'm sure we would have found a bigger one if we kept hung, hanging around looking. I was with Phelps, Jason Phelps. And what do you think that measures in terms of inches? Phelps measured it at 193. Wow. What is the other but one? That's that you, like the other you know, one you got, got on your media show, right? Shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I saw that one. That was a 200 inch deer. Wow. Um, but man, you know. But that's a deer that like you could. You could search for a deer like that your whole life. I, I mean, I had I hunted mule deer for I hunted mule deer for twenty years without World getting record, a big one. Final score of two eighteen. But you know the uh, stupid thing. That's Pope and Young. What's the difference? That's a guy. That's an archery kill. Oh, okay. Yeah, go to Boone and Crockett, and then you get into you know what's funny about record books? You get into biggest archery two twenty six. Okay, you'll get into biggest archery, biggest rifle. And then biggest ever found, and the real oh. giants are shit that was found. So they die off. Yeah, like um, the biggest bighorn ever, the biggest bighorn ever. I kind of dog on the people that keep track of the bighorn scores because the biggest bighorn ever was just found dead on a place called Wild Horse Island. It's like, it's not even a, it, it's an island in Flathead Lake in Montana. You can't hunt it. Okay, the the history of the island was it was going to be like this utopia. Where this guy was going to have like a lead economist, a lead sociologist, and shit, we're going to live on this island and solve all the world's problems. Hmm. Somehow over time, it became that there's like this little population of bighorns out there that you can't hunt, but they're wild. I'm making little quotes. They're hmm. wild, and one of them died, and it was it's the new world record bighorn. And I'm like, kinda, kinda. <laughs> they're not like historically even from the. You know yeah. what I mean? So, anyways. When you get into record shit, like the biggest shit, surprisingly, is always shit found dead or got hit by a car. Like hunters don't get the biggest stuff. There might be some case to, there might be some case I'm not thinking of where, but like the biggest whitetail isn't the biggest whitetail hunted. It's just shit that got found. What's the biggest whitetail that was ever found? It's in the 300s or something <gasps> like that. For, it's like a non, oh, Jamie can find that. Like some crazy ass non-typical. Where was that? I don't even remember. Is that Canada? I can't remember where. No, it was in the lower 48, I think. <laughs> Yeah. The sheep hunting world is another bizarre, crazy subset world. That's big money. Whitetails, whitetails is blue collar. What? The hole in the horn buck. That's a real. Is that a farm buck? No, 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 no. That's it a looks buck, like man. A farm uh-uh. buck, right? No, there's, you, there's, I believe you. you but yeah. It looks like a, a farm buck found farm. dead by railroad workers. The deer is the king of kings. <laughs> 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 Got a bullet hole through his horn. <sighs> Does it really? Wow, or someone shot it. Look at the size of that thing. That's so ridiculous. That's the Broder buck. 355 and 2 eighths. But when you get into non-typical, the score is a lot higher. You know, we we're talking about faking bucks. The, the way they score bucks is so, one thing that's so goofy about how you score bucks is a buck can have its antlers count against itself. You're familiar with this? No. So there's typical and non-typical. All right. right? Typical means very symmetrical. And for whatever reason, it's just like no one I know that likes to hunt takes this. No one I personally hang out with takes any of this seriously. But they view that like a typical should be really symmetrical. 
but it has to be super atypical to be counted as a non-typical. So if you have a buck, let's say you have a buck that has five points on one side and six points on the other side, and you measure up all the inches of antler, they'll actually deduct the difference off the score because it's not symmetrical. So the, the thing will grow antler that they don't actually count. But if it's so freakishly different, if it, if it hits a threshold of asymmetry, then its asymmetry counts in its favor. So it can actually happen that you could feasibly kill a buck and break and, and grab, take a pair of pliers or a hammer and knock a point off its horns and it actually becomes a higher scoring deer. Oh, that's so dumb. <laughs> yeah, isn't that dumb? It's ridiculous. That seems dumb, right? It's ridiculous. Is it a, it's, isn't that a weird thing, though? Like, to, like one of the things that I really admire about John Dudley, uh-huh. he doesn't score his bucks. Won't get him scored. He won't get him scored. Won't score his bulls. Won't score his bucks. He's, uh, he goes, I just think it's gross. Huh, yeah. He goes, it just, it's a great, mature buck. It's a great, mature bull. And John is one of those guys that has an enormous farm. That he caters to whitetails. Yep. I mean, he does the whole thing. He does food plots. He does controlled burns. I mean, he details it. If you go to Knock On Archery, his uh, Instagram page, he de- well, obviously, John teaches, right? Mm-hmm. So he teaches archery. He also teaches tactics on how to hunt uh, these big bucks and what he does in terms of like how he uh, develops the habitat and, and how he doesn't go in under certain winds yep. and, and he rides in on an electric bike so he doesn't leave his scent when he walks. Like he's very, very serious. Just obsessive. Oh, yep. he's obsessive. He moved to Iowa specifically to hunt bucks. Yep. That's why he moved there. He saved up all his money when he was working at Matthews and he got a piece of land and he started developing it for archery hunting and documented the whole thing and obsessed with it. I mean, this you can't talk to him during that time of the year. He's in a fucking tree stand, yep. period. And he, you know, well, he'll get like a hitless buck, like that he has photos of these bucks. I don't think he names them. He might name them. I'm not you, sure. You can't, you can't not name them or else everything's that one buck. Right. Yeah. Well, I think in- We were naming, we were naming bulls the other day and we just went from one, just so we knew what we were talking about, like the first one was Uno. <laughs> That's a good way to do it. You can't help like, like people Dose dog people dog on naming them, but you can't. You right. go spend a day hunting where you're watching a couple bucks, and you're they're gonna they're gonna you're gonna start referring to them in some way that you can you'd be like, look, there's that one buck over there, yeah, you know, and then that other buck over there. Eventually, you're like, you know, the three by five, right, right. right. Somehow, it's just it's like normal. It's like normal communication that yeah. you give them a name, but people, man, people have a heyday with it. And they get clever with it. Yeah. So I, I do like the fact that John doesn't measure them, though. Yeah. He just I, I looks think for it, a I big, think it was distasteful. It, Even though my dad measured deer. I grew up mm. around measuring deer. Like, people bring their deer to my dad's house, and he'd give you, like, an official score. Um, but I, I, I used to th- – I, I guess I, I feel like I used to overthink it. Mm. And I overthought it to the point where I thought it was distasteful, but then um, I really like – Mule deer, uh, it's the only thing I have that I've ever measured measured was mule deer, and it just is a way to um, I don't know. I'm talking you to never other measured people. any of your bulls. No, really. Yanni measured one of them one time, but but I only you know I don't really have any bulls that like I don't have any bulls that people would look at. I have one bull that people always are like, "What's that bull score?" Right, 
and Yanni measured it. And when I tell people what Yanni measured, they always say that he must have screwed it up. <laughs> I don't know that he did, but that's the thing that everybody says. He must have fucked that up. Is that the one that you got in Washington mm-hmm. State on the television show? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big one. That's the only bull I have where people ask me how big it was. But I got mule deer that how people big was ask. It? Yanni says it was 340. And everybody's yeah, like, dude, Yanni, that's a 360 bull. Yanni, Whatever. Yanni fucked up. That's what everybody says. <laughs> I don't even know enough I about it. Take it up. I got one. I got one of my one of the guys I work with, Corey. Man, he said I'm gonna come over and measure that. Bu- I'm gonna I come think, over and measure that. Bull. I think you should measure it. It looks a little bigger than that, but it doesn't oh. matter. It's an amazing bull. Yeah, it it it, it doesn't, but it, it it it's fun. And and I don't have to worry about if someone like thinks that it breeds some level of disrespect. Um, if I uh, disrespect mule deer, um, I, I don't know what respecting them looks like. No, it's not. I I mean, there is a thing, though, that people do where they become obsessed with the number only. Sure. That, that's, that does get weird. But that does it, things with anything that's quantifiable. You know, billionaires get obsessed with a guy. You know, you have 100 billion. And the guy has 130 billion. And you get obsessed with beating him. You know, they, yeah. they get obsessed with their rankings on the world's richest man thing. I'm sure they do. You know, I don't think Elon does, but I think a lot of those guys do. They get obsessed with that number. They want to be the number one guy. It's it's a it's a number thing with people. Yeah, I, I think that, I think that's true. Um, the the writer Pat Durkin, he's a he he covers. He used to be the editor at Deer and Deer Hunting and covers wildlife and everything. Uh, he had said how uh, he's got a couple quotes. I like one is, "Big deer make people stupid," and two is um he was telling me one time about. He used to cover a lot of big buck killers, okay? So in his job, he used to have to track down, like someone killed a new big buck. Like, they chase the story. They'll pay for rights to tell the story. Mm-hmm. And um, he was always dismayed on these a lot of these guys that would, that would just consistently kill these big bucks. He was always surprised. He goes, they can't. If you ask them what kind of tree it was they were sitting in, they can't tell you. Wow. You know, and he's like that. Cha- like that changed his view on some of the real, like consistent big butt guys. Is um, it's a subtle thing, but he's like they they. they uh, he was like somehow it, it surprised him that you could be so proficient at that, but not be like what he would regard as a woodsman. Mm, yeah, I've always been impressed with woodsmen. Yeah. People can tell you, oh, over there by the cedars, you see that juniper. I'm yeah. like, what? Which one's what? How the fuck do you know? What are you doing? Yeah, I can't. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember. He, I, I can't. I don't. I might be. I'm not doing a terrible disservice to how he put it, but it was basically that, like, um, it it, it knocked it down in his mind that you could get so good at it without having, uh, like what he regarded as the fundamentals, an overall comprehensive knowledge of the yeah. woods. Yeah, and it's like you could kind of get it. You could yeah. get that. Yeah. And not get the things that he always grew up thinking you needed to have. That. <laughs> Did you get to John's page, John Dudley's uh, Instagram? Yeah, I had, but the video. I mean, the only thing that I could see was there's a video, and it was taking off the picture that. I Just to show show uh, some of the photos because he's got some. Uh, cool bucks. One of them that he just shot a couple of days ago that he had been, you know he he hunts all season long until until he can get one. That's a mule deer. Like when I That's, click on that, the video, the picture goes away. Oh, it's one of those it's things. A video, yeah. Um, there are some though that he's got from the the far right of that is the one that he shot. It's yeah. A video also. That's a video. Yeah. So that's the buck. But there you go. This is one that he just shot. And so again, John will be out there day in, day out, 
a month plus at a time. I don't know how long the Iowa season is, but he gets these big, and he's like self-filming everything. He films everything. He has like the whole setup up there with video cameras on arms, and he mm-hmm. does them all himself. So, which complicates things, right? Because he has to get the buck in focus, and then once he gets the buck in focus, yeah, that's okay. Make that large so he can see it. And so he, so this is the thing with John is that he's like really obsessed with education as well. He explains what he does and how he sets everything up and when he goes in. Give a little volume on this. And I'm just bumping more deer trying to get in for the morning hunts than what it's worth because the evening feed is the majority of the movement. So I'm coming in here 11, 12 o'clock in the morning when everything's not out in the open and I'm getting on a food source. These are blinds that we built this year through an exercise, brand new field. But what's unbelievable about these next couple hunts for me is these are critical hunts because a family member of mine waited five years, drew a tag, came in. I hunted with him during the rut. We rattled in an awesome buck and he made what we thought was an awesome shot. Quartering away, it looked a little bit high and just like what every bow hunter is eventually going to have to live through, we thought we lost this buck. We could not find blood. We looked and looked and grid searched. He went back home. He's been sick about it. And then here we are only a few days before gun season. And I just got a picture of this buck with the injury clearly visible. I am going to focus on this deer. It's a deer that I don't think is going to make through the, through the winter with this injury. So this is going to be critical going in e-powered as quiet as I can with my backpack middle of the day. It's the name of the game. Let's see what happens. He wound up getting that buck. So this is uh, part of this story is he, he did find that buck and, the, you know, the right shoulder was all fucked up and destroyed. It's pus. Got one lung. That arrow got one lung. And this fucking buck was still out there rutting. This year I found a, a buddy of mine and hit a buck that he couldn't find. And was worried sick about it. And I found that buck playing grab ass with some does. Wow. Yeah, he was real happy when I told him that. John, when he found another buck that he shot this year in Oklahoma, he pulled a broadhead out of its shoulder. Like as he was butchering the buck, someone else had shot it with some, he called it like a Walmart $3 special broadhead. It was like a cheap broadhead, but it was stuck in the buck shoulder. It was no no pus, no infection, no nothing. We used to always think that losing them, we always thought that like when you lost them, they died. But some of you, a lot of them, you know, a lot of them you lose because they ain't dead. It's crazy how tough they are. Yeah. It's really amazing. Yeah, I always we, we like always thought it was a death sentence. How about that one um, famous photo where the arrow is through the body and then bone has grown around the arrow? Oh yeah, that's crazy. See if picture. you can find yeah. that. It is the wildest yeah, picture. Really, is something. because the arrow is embedded in this deer's body and the body grows bone around the arrow. Yep, which is that's so great crazy. Photo. Like, look how deep that arrow goes. You would absolutely assume that that's a dead animal, but nope. Look how the body puts bone around it. Yeah. And, uh, have I ever showed you my elk vertebra that has that's encased? Uh, it's encased a broadhead. No. Yeah, it's got a muzzy broadhead grown into it. Wow. Yeah, it built like it just grew around it. It's probably about. It's not even a quarter inch from There's the another spine. One. Look at that one. Yeah, that's that crazy. Yeah. It's crazy because if you look at that shot, you're like, oh well, that's uh, in the boiler room. That's a dead animal, but nope. 
Jim Bridger carried a uh, carried a broadhead in his shoulder for two years. Really? Yeah. You know? Wow. When he had it cut out, they say it was the first uh, like uh, first Western style surgery in the American West. I think is when Jim Bridger had the broadhead cut out of his shoulder. Look at that one in its head. You know? Oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> My friend Brian Stevens shot a black bear through the center of its forehead. Killed it instantly with a bow. Yeah, on purpose. It, the the he said the bear was so close to him that it was one of those things where if he didn't shoot it, it was going to find him, and it was within this range of like fifteen feet where he was worried that it could possibly rush him, and so he was at full draw and he found the shot and he had confidence in his equipment and he's an amazing archer, so he just center punched it right through the head. I have a photo of that. You want to see that? Yeah, I uh, I killed a boar from like this year with my bow from me to you and i did like within the same thing like something i would never do which is just right into his forehead but that's i just shot him right through his forehead because he was just from me to you away wow that's crazy through the forehead he was uh, i'd hit a different one and that one run off squealing and that boar came in so hot hearing all that squealing going on and almost got to got to me and then uh, stopped right there and yeah, I would never like advise someone doing that. No, but at that no, distance, never. it's just like it just doesn't. Well, that's like a frontal shot. I saw there was another thing that I saw on your show. You took a, a frontal shot when you were in uh, New Mexico, right? Yep. That's a that's a risky shot, right? That's mm, tricky man, shot. I used to think it was range. a. I used to think it was a no no, but um, I used to think it was a no no. But in 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 like a lot of conversations and talking to Phelps and. And, and other guys, uh, I think that that under the right circumstances, um, it's just. I mean, the, well, it speaks for itself, man. Yeah, uh, Dudley feels the same way. He he shot a lot of them that way. Under the right circumstance, it's just like unbelievably deadly. And there's a lot. There's a plenty of shots that like that. Un, you know, under the right circumstances are deadly. But I used to think it was just categorically a no-no. Uh, but I had my mind changed by conversation, like a lot of conversations with a lot of people, and um, and I've seen it twice now, where it's just done properly is just deadlier than a heart shot. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff there, right? You got to get it like right where the beard touches. Yep. It's like as long as you don't hit the the top of the rib cage. Yeah. And it, it it is man. I there's can't like, find it. It's in there somewhere. I there's know. uh I, I think that there's there's great arguments against it where you just don't have as much room to fudge, but I think like at certain distances, um, I think at certain differences with like certain levels of proficiency, it's, it strikes me as like incredibly deadly. Well, yours was perfect. Yeah, he took a step. Yeah, and that was what like twenty yards, right? Something. I think it was twenty four yards. Yeah, so nice and close, where you don't really. You're not concerned. I was already drawn back. Yeah. Nice and close. And just was like, man, there's no way I'm not going to, there's no way I'm going to miss. There's no way I'm going to not do this. Have you paid attention to uh, Joel Turner? Uh-uh. Do you know about Joel Turner? No. Well, you know, P- P- everyone always talks about uh, buck fever and you talk about, uh, you know, the, the moment. The, the way I just try, try to describe to people how crazy bow hunting is, is you might, and most things where you get good at them, you can practice them. But you don't really get a lot you of told practice. Me, I think you maybe told me about this one time over the yeah. phone. You don't get a lot of practice in actually pulling the trigger, mm-hmm. actually releasing the arrow. 
because especially if you're elk hunting once a year, you have like one moment a year. So you have all this anxiety built up into this one moment. And there's two different types of uh, – there's controlled shooting and then there's what's called uh, an open loop system. There's a closed loop system and an open loop system. And you want to operate in a closed loop system where you have complete control over the shot from the beginning to the end. It's never ah! – it's never just like, bah, it goes off. And the way you do that is to have a mantra in your mind and to repeat that mantra so you're in the present moment through mm. the entire shot process. Joel Turner has a website called Shot IQ. And Joel Turner was a, um, he was a SWAT instructor. And so he's very aware of high pressure situations where people tend to panic or people tend to flinch. And this is the best way to avoid doing that, to avoid getting yourself into an open loop system. Now, an open loop system would be like swinging a baseball bat. Like once you're swinging that bat, that bat is swinging, right? You're, you're just going, wah, let it go. A closed loop system, in the closed loop system, you could stop at any moment. You could like you could let down oh, at any yeah, moment. You. You're in complete control of the situation. You're not overcome with anxiety. I mean, obviously, you're very anxious, right? It's a big moment. But in order to stay, to keep that in the conscious mind, he he recommends and he teaches how you use uh, like a mantra. Like he has a whole thing that he said. Like he has a whole process in the draw cycle, and then he has a whole process during the shot cycle. How long is the mantra? It's pretty quick. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, draw back and aim, uh, get it done, watch it to keep it. Yeah. And then when- I used to have a sticker on the riser in my bow that my dad put there when I was a kid that said, stay calm, pick a spot. That's good too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and if you could say, stay calm, I never, pick a yeah, spot. Yeah, I never remember to read that sticker. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem, right? <laughs> but is that that moment while it's happening, it's like, ah! Yeah. Like, yeah. and to- and It's if, a huge thing, And man. if it doesn't happen a lot, like if you're a guy like Remy Warren that shoots a lot of things with your bow, you don't think about it like that because you do it so, or Cam Haynes, a great example. Like he is, uh, he hits the trigger. Whereas Joel Turner recommends a surprise release. And during a mm. surprise release, you're pulling through the shot and the shot breaks. Yeah, yeah. And you are aware of the process the entire time, but there will be no flinching because you literally don't know when it's going off, you know, which is ideal. And so his whole system, he has a very comprehensive system on his website that's designed to inform your mind and to train your mind to be able to stay controlled during these very high pressure situations. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, very beneficial. I, think, I wish that I would have gotten on to, um, there was a time in my life when it would have been good to get on to that uh, because it used to happen to me. And, 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 as it's, and I'm not saying it doesn't anymore, but I've found that just so much exposure and then a decreasing, um, a decreasing sense of like, like, if I don't do this, it'll never happen. Right, 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 right. There's that. That I realize, like, this is your big chance. It'll never happen again. Right. If you that don't get anxiety. this, you'll never. Right. Do you know what I mean? And, like, like getting through that, I've gotten through it not by, I, I've gotten through that sense not by overcoming it through any any sort of game I've done with myself. I've gotten through that sense of just, like, long-term exposure. Hunting with my kid now is funny because one of the biggest things I'm trying to explain all the time and my daughter will be well yesterday she turned old enough to hunt but um we'll be just like just trying to like suppress 
the excitement. Yeah, stay calm. Trying to suppress the excitement to try to te- teach him just to be like calm all the time. I remember calm. when I was on that hunt with you, the first hunt, I was in the middle of like range. We we're I, I had the the the. I was like lying down on the ground and I had the deer in the sight and I was thinking of squeezing the trigger, but I was realizing that I was letting my heart race too much and that it was, there was a little too much movement. And I remember I had to go, hold on. And I stopped myself and I just calmed myself down for a second or two and settled down. But I recognized that I was in this sort of panic state. It was like, yep. don't, 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 don't do that. Yeah, yeah. Don't let that overwhelm you. And th- thank goodness I did. I probably would have fucking shot a mile over its head. You know a great thing I've, there's no, you can't do this with archery, but a thing that I've done with my boy is uh, I've done it in a couple circumstances. I make him dry fire on something. Mm, yeah, that's good. Like one time we were, in a, we were, he, we were, he had a doe tag. We we're trying to fill his white-tailed doe tag and whatever happened, I didn't like what I was seeing as he was getting ready to shoot. I'm like, no, 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 no. And I didn't, I wasn't worried about the opportunity passing. And I made him, he dry fired twice. And I'm like, now nah, we're going to put around. Cause I, he, I could just good. see that he was a little wound up. Yeah. Yeah. And and that was real helpful, but you could, there's no, that's a good way to ruin your bow. <laughs> well, yeah. That's not good with a bow. But if, if and you think about like any other thing that you do that you get good at, you, you have time to do it. That's the thing with fighting too. When people have never fought before, the first fight that they ever have is fucking filled with anxiety. Oh, I, dude, I, I could be in a ten minute fight, and I wouldn't even—I probably wouldn't even ever register that it was happening. You can't even believe it's really happening. Yeah. But I mean, I'm talking about like a c- competition. So competition is even more crazy because you're ready for it, and then you're thinking it's going to come in an hour. Like, when am I up? I'm up in two hours. And then you just laying around the dressing room and you have to stay loose so you're hitting pads a little bit and you're warming up and you're stretching and you're getting ready and then all of a sudden are you ready are you ready fight you're like ah but the guys who do it a lot they get to this point where they can perform at a, an elite level even in the most high pressure situation yeah but that's accentuated by experience. The more experience you have, like a, a guy who has 50 fights has an enormous advantage over a guy who has two or three fights because you've just been there so many times before and you could stay calm. You know that you can perform under those bright lights. For UFC fighters, it's a really big moment to make that debut. And a lot of them have had a bunch of professional fights before. We'll get guys that have had like 15, 20 fights outside of the organization. Then they get to the UFC, and then they can't believe it. They're in the fucking octagon, and they clamp that door shut, and then mm-hmm. the, they look around, and then you know they see Herb Dean. Are you ready? Are you ready? And like, oh, my God, is this really fucking happening? That you mean whenever there's a thing that you're preparing for for so long and then it's one moment But with a fight at least you can kind of move around and get loosened up You know you can move around you could avoid you could you you have skills with When you're drawing back on an animal if you've never done that before that moment is just like it's just one moment Yep, it's just one thing release one arrow and it's so overwhelmingly Anxiety ridden for people. I think that the real um you know, you know, when you spend time around really exceptional, really talented hunters, they're they're also able to operate. Uh, they're also able to do what they need to do in very like compressed time frames and do unexpected stuff. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like they're yeah. like they can make they, decisions. Yeah, they fall outside of 
things fall outside of practice. But yes. Like, and that that's like an, I feel that to, for a large measure that's that's an experience thing as well. I think so. I think that applies to almost everything. It certainly applies to stand up. It applies to stand up comedy. Like if something happens outside the norm, I remember when I was coming up in the early days. One time I was doing really well on stage and I knocked my drink over and I didn't address it. And then I bombed because like everyone could tell I like freaked out that I knocked my drink over, but I didn't say anything about it. Yeah. And then I lost my composure and then all of a sudden it was downhill. Like I had all this confidence. Everything was going well. People were laughing. It was going pretty good. But I'd only been doing comedy like, like a year and a half or something like that. It was very sketchy, very touch and go. I, I see that with when I'm when I'm watching a comedian and i see him deal with a heckler yeah or an unexpected thing i'll eat i'll sometimes think like oh they really are smart like that they did that they were so like because you watched it happen yes you watch someone say something you know it's not rehearsed and they respond in a way that you're so jealous of that they would have ever thought to have said that and like oh shit their mind is fast well, it's you, not just a routine yes they've also done it thousands of times yeah. the thing about stand-up is when you get in the groove you're doing you're performing like for me i'm performing multiple times every week that's the only way you get in a groove we, we i was on a phone a plane yesterday with ron white and we were talking about that and he was talking about how long it took him to get back into his groove from covid mm. you know because covid he took like eight months off and then he started getting back into the groove when the show started opening up again and he goes, you know, and Ron is such a fucking character. He goes, for a while I was doing a Ron White impression on stage. I was like, what do I sound like? What do I do? He goes, I was surprised at how long it took me to get back into the fucking groove. You know, he had to just do a bunch of shows and then get loose. Yeah. And then he was also, we were talking about how some comics, they something happens and they forget whatever it was that used to make them good. And then they can't do it anymore. Mm. Like they lose that fucking voodoo. They lose that connection that sure. they have to what they do. It's uh, and again, it's a lot of it is performance and it's anxiety. And there's a lot of things that are at play, you know. And but I've done a lot of shit, man. And I think that hunting is probably one of the most anxiety-ridden things I've ever done. Like the the, the where you just have to wrestle. With your uh, your your nervous system, mm -hmm. where you have to like shut the fuck up and stay calm. You have to have that like dominant conscious mind that goes no 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 no. Like a little weird thoughts are coming to your head. Like don't no 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 room for you. No stay yep. in the groove. Stay in the groove. But if you don't have experience doing that, I can imagine for some people they're having a fucking heart attack. They're like hyperventilating. They they like they can barely keep their arms straight. Yeah. I've I've worried about uh, as I've lost some of that. I've worried about um, what that means. Well, it's just experience, I think. Yeah, or I'm like, man, maybe I'm getting lower T. No, it's <laughs> it's probably like the same thing that happens when you do stand up a yeah, lot. Yeah, I just don't like. I don't. Yeah, I just I don't like all that. Just all the emotions, man. Like the dread and the. You know, the worried about dicking it up and yeah. the, it'll never, I'll never. It's like so much more. It's just like I'm just yeah. so much more calm now. But you know what I wanted, the thing I wanted to ask you about when you brought up performing? I've always wanted to ask you this. Do you get where, do you ever start feeling like way overexposed? I don't mean like too much media, but do you ever feel like when you come off doing shows, do you want to go um, 
crawl into a hole or do you want to like go out with people you don't know? Most of the time when I come off stage, I want to go relax somewhere with friends, get something to eat. Oh. Or I want to go home and write. You do? Th- those are the things I like to do. I like to go home and watch TV, watch a documentary, or write. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever I, feel like uh, um, like people are just seeing uh, like you've laid out too much of yourself and shit like that? Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I clearly have. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one time, this was a couple of years ago, you told me you wish you were 10% less famous. Yeah. That's what I was trying to do with this Spotify thing, man. I was like, like, because Jamie, so Jamie was 10%. panicking because at the beginning of the Spotify thing, our numbers dropped like way lower because now we're exclusive to this one platform. Uh-huh. We used to be on iTunes and YouTube, and then all of a sudden we're just on Spotify. And uh, he's like, oh, there's so many less people listening. I'm like, good. Good. Let's keep it that way. I want to be ten percent less famous. Yeah. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. The opposite happened. But it's um, yeah. It's a there's a lot, lot going on with something like that. We have that many people scrutinizing your words and all the shit you do. And but that's also what I do. You know. So it's like you get more accustomed to it, and then your level of what you're comfortable with changes. Yeah. After we, you know, I don't do many live shows, but when I do do live shows. God, it feels like, like, man, just leaves me feeling like I enjoy it, but holy shit. It's a lot. Yeah. Holy shit. Just makes you want to just like, I don't know. Well, there's so many things going on. Yeah. Especially you're doing a live podcast. You have all these people on the stage with you. You're navigating this conversation. You're sort of orchestrating it. And then if someone's trying to talk while you're talking, you're like, but I have this thing I got to get out of my head. And then... You know, it's like you got to know when to talk and when not to talk. And also, you know, you have a thought that comes across. And what people don't realize is one of the difficult things about podcasting is when you have a thought in your head and you're trying to get it out and someone else is talking, it's very difficult to maintain that thought, Mm. which is one of the reasons why people talk over each other. They just jump in. They're like, I got to get this out and I, I can't help myself. And you get better at like maintaining those thoughts without interjecting and interrupting someone else's thought. Because if you do interrupt that person, that person will be a less less enjoyable guest. They won't be as good because they won't be at their best. Oh, so yeah, you, yeah. So you have to figure out, like, when do I talk? Like, when, what is the right amount of yeah. listening? What's the right amount of talking? And for some people, that shit could be exhausting. Yeah, it's hard you, for me. And when you're done, you're like, <sighs> Well, also, you're doing it in front of, like, a theater. I never do that. I never do podcasts in front of like live. I mean, I've done a couple in my in my day. Only one of my own show that I ever do in front of a live audience. Uh, and I decided it's a different thing. It's like what people like about this podcast is that it's a conversation. If you do it in front of a live audience, especially if you're doing it with comedians, then they're going to play to the crowd. Oh, and yeah. And what's funny is you, you do something kind of irrational where there's a very small fraction of the people that will experience it. This is why we, I don't record them and release them anymore because – there's such a small percentage of the actual listeners that are sitting there in that moment right then, but you are so beholden to them and catering to them. Yeah. Because you have to look them in the eye. Yeah. And when it's di- when it's distant and, and digital, um, you don't f- you don't feel as uh, you don't feel that obligation. Yeah. That you feel when you got like they, they like bought a ticket and shit, man. Right. You better. Yeah. And then well, also. <laughs> like these are more valuable than anything else, right? That, that screws with you. It's also kind of cool for them if you don't re- release it. If you don't release it, yeah. it's like they were, this is a, a moment 
that's just a shared moment with everybody in that room, and it's very unique. And you you leave there going, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I'll I don't think I'll do those. The, the la- I've I've only done I haven't done I did like one post COVID live show and we did one in Billings, um, and uh, we our our audience broke the theater's record on alcohol consumption, <laughs> which had been uh, which had been previously held by Rob Schneider. Oh, that's crazy. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I just saw Rob Schneider this weekend. Yeah, I went to see Adam Sandler and Rob Schneider open for him. Tell wow. him his his alcohol record at the Alberta Bear Theater in Billings has been shattered. <laughs> How big is the theater in Billings? I can't remember. What, I mean, it's sub two thousand. So, yeah. what is the biggest theater you guys have ever done your show? Sixteen hundred. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. Do you? Um, That's we sold out of sixteen hundred in Minneapolis. Nice. Yeah. Isn't I that like, kind of crazy? Huh? Isn't it kind of crazy? Oh yeah, super crazy, man. Um, I was gonna do a bunch of them. We we're we we're signed up to do. We we're gonna do a whole shitload of live shows before COVID, and then they got canceled and rescheduled. And eventually, it was just done. We Did just, you lose interest in doing it, or? No, no, I didn't lose interest in doing it. It's not my. I, I enjoy it, but I'd rather. I just need to have room to do other stuff too. Yeah, you know, I still like. To, I like to write. I like to work on things like that. So I need to have room to be able to do that. It's complicated, right? When you're trying to juggle multiple different things that you do and try to allocate time for yep. each individual thing. It's hard to get in mind space. It's hard to get the room for it. Yeah. I still like to write a lot. I'll always write. Um, I'll always write. I know I'll go back to it. I mean, I do it now, but I shouldn't say I'll go back to it. I'll go, I'll, 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 at some point in time when I'm like an old man, I'll just probably just write. Whatever writing looks like. Mm. However it's distributed, you know, it's the thing I like most. Do you and I get to keep my hand in it right now, you know? Yeah. Do you enjoy the audiobook process? Love like, it. Yeah. Love it. The audio originals? Yeah. Totally cool. And it's funny like looking back in 2000 shit when I was coming out of graduate school, I was so afraid of uh I was so afraid of other kinds of media. Cuz it just been like magazines, books, magazines, books. And then I was so afraid of everything. Why? Cuz I, I just didn't understand that you could I didn't understand that that the, there was a possibility. I just didn't understand how to distribute ideas, and I didn't understand that that what I want to talk about is the main thing, and I don't care on what platform I talk about it. I thought I, I just thought that like writing books was it, and it became that like Amazon and the the what's going to happen with the book business and whatever, you know. That it's killing the small bookstore and books are never going to be the same and all this kind of stuff always just scared the shit out of me. But then I, uh, eventually I realized that that I was never, it's never that I needed to write books. I just needed to be able to make material. And I had a set of ideas that I want to be able to use and create material around. And I don't care if it gets printed in a book. Mm. It's fine with me if it, it's fine to me to have it be other ways. It could be something on Insta, like it could be that, like make a thing just for Instagram, make a thing just for YouTube, make an audio original that will never be book form, make a book that will never be audio. Mm. I'm comfortable, like I, I don't, I don't anymore look and be like, well, that's more important than that's more important than that. Like a hierarchy of, of sort of like what gatekeepers you went through, you know, to yeah. get there. So I just view it now like I like work on a set. I have a set of ideas, a set of experiences, a set of things, and I and I put them where it makes the most sense, um, and that uh, alleviated a ton of stress for me. 
Are you doing video with your podcast as well? No, we have. We've done little segments, and we might we're moving into a new studio, and we're hopefully going to get it where it's better. But our stuff's like we've toyed with it, but we haven't fully satisfied it. People really enjoy watching stuff, even sure, if man. they leave it on the background. They like watching yep. while they do other stuff. Uh, we, we've 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 definitely messed with it. We were doing segments for a while. Um, that weren't like we were doing segments for a while, but they were never as they would never do as well on YouTube as our other stuff did. But I could picture making a separate thing for it, especially when we get into a space where we can just do a better job of it where it looks better. Mm. Um, it's just it's very hard and like in our studio now, it's very hard to get like a good product that anybody can be proud of. So you're you're building out a studio. Yeah. So you've you've completely settled into Montana. You're there forever now. Oh, I, don't, I mean, I don't know about forever. We got young kids. Um, they're old enough now where they know. We used to just move them around, like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, they just wake up in a different place. Yeah. Now they're like, you know, they're very entrenched. But yeah, I don't, I don't imagine. I mean, I can't speak forever, but for now, for a long time coming, yeah, yeah, for a long time coming. I don't want to do. I don't want to. It'd be a big fight to move our kids. I don't want to move them. Yeah. Well, how old are your kids now? So we have uh, seven, ten, and twelve. 12 is like the latest you can kind of move them and have them be okay with it. I feel like if you move a kid at 14, it's like you bring them to a new high school. Fuck. Yeah, if we needed to. I mean, if we needed to, we would, but um, it's not that. Like, if we needed to, we would, but it's just, it would feel sort of uh, rude. Yeah, just be like, it's not, I don't, I'm not, I, the, the motivation isn't going to come for me. There's, right. not, there's not like a thing. I know enough about my future in the coming years what I'm going to do and shit. It's not like a, there's not going to be some opportunity where if I moved away, it would be great. Right. It's well, especially like, for what you do, like Montana is kind of the perfect place. Yeah. Cause we just, we've, we're just set up there now and I can like be there and, and, and I know what I'm going to be, I know how, I'm, how I'm going to be working for a long time to come. And so I just, it's just not an issue. It's also like a high level of people that are in the outdoors that love the outdoors and yeah. You know, every time I go to Montana, I'm always blown away just by the the views, just the way it looks. We got an office, so we have an office in Montana. Um, we have an office in Haley, Idaho, so Sun Valley, right? Is that where First Light is? Yeah. And these are like the places that you met. Like, you know, you look at any time like one of these magazines comes out with the 10 best towns, 10 best mountain towns, whatever the hell, you know? Yeah. So I was like, is it going to be like Sun Valley? Is it going to be like Ketchum right. or Bozeman, you know? And, dude, you would not believe. And, the, and also the amount of people that moved during the pandemic could just pack up and move and they'll, like, figure it out later. You would not believe how that it winds up being that it's actually very difficult to recruit into these places. It's so weird. To get people to move there. Yeah. Really? We just think that, like, you'd be able to hire anyone you wanted. Because they'd be like, are you kidding me? I can move to catch up or I can move to both. It's, it's hard for people to just fucking move anywhere. Yeah. they People definitely want to move and then they get to talking to their family. <laughs> yeah. And their wife's like, we're not fucking going anywhere. Yeah. yeah that's the thing that blows like, 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 bro. That's the thing that blows my mind. I'm like, on one hand, it's like everyone in the world's trying to get there except the people that you're trying to offer jobs to. Yeah. I don't know, man. I feel super lucky that I fig- that I found this place, like when I decided to move, and that like COVID kind of helped me in that way. Mm-hmm. Like presented this opportunity, 
and that everybody was on board. My kids were the first ones on board. They were. Because we came out here and we went to the lake and no one was wearing masks and they were all jumping in the water and California was like spooked out. Yeah. They like they they had full COVID anxiety in California when we came out here. We came out here, we were sitting together in a restaurant. I'll never forget, it was in May of 2020. We're sitting together in a restaurant. My kids were like, I can't believe we can go to a restaurant. Because <laughs> you had to wear a mask when you got in uh-huh. and then they took your temperature. They did like a little thermometer on your forehead, a little digital thing, check to see if you don't have a fever. And then you sat down. I was like, this is crazy. I'm like, is that real? What is that testing for? Like, no one knew back then. Yep. There was no vaccines. It was telling you it's going to be a good documentary, man. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it was a good thing to live through because it, it also it, it shows you the difference between how some people deal with big changes and big moments. Like, there's people that have a certain level of anxiety that exists. Like, they're, they're already freaked out by regular life. And then COVID comes along and it just ramps it up into this uncontrollable level. Just the other day, I was driving and I saw a guy in his car with his fucking mask on. Mm-hmm. Dri- I'm like, bro, you're alone. Like, what do you do? Do you just like wearing a mask? Like, what is this? Like, what do you do? You think you're pre- and it was a surgical mask. It wasn't even a good one. I was like, this is so strange. Like, what are you doing? Have you ever, do you know the writer Margaret, Margaret Atwood? I've heard the name. Okay. She has a book called The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. And it's this it dystopian Yeah, my future. wife loves that show. Oh, I haven't seen the show. Yeah. But, uh, I'm familiar with, uh, maybe what I'm going to say, I don't know if it's in the show or just in the novel, but in the novel The Handmaid's Tale, it's this dystopian future where um, there's like a religious revolution of sorts. Anyways, men hold all the power. It's just like an insane patriarchy. And it follows this woman through this and she loses track of her husband. He's gone. But in the book, I keep telling people this story when we're talking about COVID, because in the book, she's sort of like talking to her dead or gone husband. And she's asking, there's one thing I need to know, though, is like, was there some part of you that kind of liked it? You know, she's wondering of her husband about when she lost all of her rights and he like controlled the household. She's like, did that somehow speak to you in some way? Like, was there a little bit of you that liked that power Mm. that you had? And, And looking back. Like, in looking back on the pandemic, there are certain players that I'm like, some part of them liked it. Yeah. A little teeny bit, like, it spoke to something about um, how much influence you could wield. And, sure. like, there, there's something where, like, some people, they don't, they'll never admit it, they kind of dug it. Well, there's a bunch of people that like telling people what to do. Uh-huh. They didn't have the opportunity. Yeah. But if all of a sudden they can yell, put a mask on, and you have to do it. <laughs> no, they, some people dug it. You kind of have to do it. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll put a mask on. It spoke to some deeply infantile. Yeah. Authoritarian. Like, th- something where I'm like, yeah. Like, yeah. you kind of liked it, dude. I feel like you kind of liked it. And then there's also some people that like being told what to do. Yeah, yeah. They like that, too. They like that there's rules. They want everyone else to have to follow them too. Yeah. We went. We were joking around about this because we went to see Roger Waters here. Oh, you did? Yeah, and it was great. Awesome show. Huh. Roger was on the podcast too. It was great. He plays pool. God, I don't like, dude. This is this keeps embarrassing me. I didn't know that because I go on, I go into Spotify, and I'm like, and I scroll, and I'm like, can okay, I listen to that? Can't, but I don't, I don't know that I'm missing things. Well, there's so fucking many of them. I mean, I, I do. He had Roger Waters. Yeah, he was great. Very interesting guy. Brilliant guy. Dude, I can't wait to listen to that. How long ago was that? A few months ago. Yeah. A few, a few <sighs> I need, months back. I need a new system. Very interesting guy. Um, but anyway, um, we go to his concert, and everyone backstage is wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, everyone. And uh, I'm like, this is bizarre. Like, you have to wear a mask. Like, if you want to go back there, you have to wear a mask. I'm like, I was hanging out with them all day. Like, we were on a podcast together all fucking day. I was breathing. I hugged them. You know, we played pool together. Like, no one had a fucking mask on. And then we get to this thing, and okay, all we all have to wear masks. So it was me and Hinchcliffe and Ari and Duncan, and so we all just fucking put a mask on. And so we're we're hanging out backstage, and I'm you know I'm ever I'm telling I'm yelling at everybody, put your fucking mask on, bro, put your fucking mask on. Like you guys, like some of the guys like took their mask down by the chin, my guy, but over the nose, <laughs> over the nose, and it became like a fun thing. Where we were joking around about like telling each other to put our put our masks on, and but to then do it right. the thing is though, once you go out into the audience, then you take your mask off. So now you're around everybody. Yeah. And then you go backstage, put your mask back on. Like this is a game. This is like a bizarre game. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys that worked on the crew was like, "It's just a way that everybody lets everyone know that they're leftist." <laughs> And I go, you think? He goes, yeah, that's what it is. I go, I always say it's the Democrats MAGA hat. He's like, yes, that's what it is. Because he's like, he goes, it's gone. It's so fucking COVID's over. Like, this is this is a crazy thing to do it. My friend got it. I called him today. He got, he's 70 and he got COVID. And I, I sent a nurse to his house and the, the whole deal. I'm like, are you okay? How you doing? It's like, yeah, I got a little bit of a cough. It's not that big a deal. And he's fucking, he's just kind of a fat guy and he's 70. You know, it's like, it's over. Okay, it's His like name started with J. No, no, no. The <laughs> flute. I don't know who that would be. Who's that? Who's Jay? Trying to think of a friend of yours that you. Joey sent. Diaz. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, I said I said nurses I'm like to a Joey too. A friend of yours that you'd have a parental feeling towards. No, no, no. He's not even a close friend. He's just a friend. Oh, okay. I just I called him for something else, and he got told. It. I go, hey, what's going on, man? How you doing? So, Actually, I got COVID, and I said, all right, tell me where you're at. I'll have a nurse come to you, and I got him an IV vitamin drip and all that. Just, oh, that's good. So. But the point is, like, he wasn't worried, and he's 70, Yeah, you know? Yeah. I'm like, you're going to be all right. Like, this, it's over, okay? This shit is not what it was in March of 2020 when everybody was shitting their pants and they're shutting the government and shutting the country down. This is a different thing now. So, like, if you're still wearing a fucking mask in your car today, that's you. Like, you have to deal with whatever that is. With you. I always hold out, though. I'm like, I don't know what they got going on. I don't know what they got going on at their home or with themselves. Well, they might have, ke- yeah. I mean, uh, they might be going through chemotherapy or something. Yeah. Sure. So, always yeah, problems. I always hold that out. But not when you're in your car. Not when you're in your car. You're in your car by yourself. Yeah. And you don't even wear a good mask. He's wearing a fucking goofy ass <laughs> face mask <laughs> that doesn't even stop shit from getting into your mouth. It's, oh yeah, man! I just got oh, I, I was in uh, I was sitting in the airport when they dropped the flight. Oh yeah, people cheered. They announced it. Everybody dropped cheered. the mask recommendations. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody cheered. Yeah. I got on the next plane. Not a person on that flight. It was a flight into Montana. Not a, I remember walking in there and couldn't believe not a person on the plane. My buddy was in the air. On an Alaska Airlines flight, he was in the air when it happened, and they came down with a garbage bag. Wow. You know, and he said some people made a big scene out of putting their thing in the garbage bag, and some people made a big scene out of not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I read people on Twitter, and there's people that are saying, I'm still masking up for other people's protection. Yeah, yeah, I, I read sure. this guy. He made a post about how he's vaxxed 
uh, he's had two boosters and he still wears a mask for other people's protection. And he made a big declaration about it on Twitter and all these other people that are fucking shut-ins are all like responding to it. Good for you. Amazing. Good for you. It's like, buddy, it's over. Yeah. It's over. And it's over until it's not over again, which is what's really scary. Because now you got a bunch of people that are really used to complying. And well, you got to also got a lot of people who are just not going to comply. <laughs> That's true. Matter what happens next man. time around? Yeah, we're not talking about not different. wanting to turn the jaguar into the spotted owl. Mm -hmm. Meaning that it becomes it stops being an animal and becomes like a social symbol. Yes, right. Um, ho holy shit! To the next administration, he's trying to get people to mask up. Man. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I mean they're like, oh, well, fucking Fauci before so he left was telling people they should mask up against the flu. Like, buddy. Well, I, yeah, I mean, they. I don't care about like, I'm not. Uh, there's a big difference between what you choose to do. Yeah, recommendation there's, versus yeah. There's like recommendations. Yeah. Fine, choosing to do shit. Fine. Right. It's the. It's like it's the mandates that burn people. Yeah. It's the mandates that burn people. I went out like, uh, I went out and got a vac. I don't think we, we no. We never. Our kids never did. I went out and got a vaccine. I never like it. Never bother me but like making people yeah i found it to be like i found it to be really problematic because i kept trying to think of in other scenarios i'm like what else would you like even when dealing with employees or something like what else was is analogous that you could make someone go do well not only that but now we're finding that if people got vaccine injured so if you have a mandate in your business and then people got vaccine injured. You can't sue the vaccine manufacturers, but now they're starting to sue the businesses. So the businesses that forced them to do the vaccine. Oh, I was wondering if that was ever going to happen. It started to happen. Yeah. There's at least one case that I know of. It's The problem is, it's like, it's one thing if you're telling people to do something that you have a long history of, like, uh, long-term data. You know exactly what the repercussions are. But when you're telling people to do something where you don't have long-term data and you have studies from the pharmaceutical that's based on biased data that's interpreted by their scientists and then they throw out any studies that show negative effects or lack of positive effects and they can highlight – they can run 10 studies and two of them get the required results, what they're looking for. Yeah. And then the other eight don't. They throw those out. It's it's complicated because you're dealing with a company that you're dealing with a business that's really just about making a lot of money, mm -hmm. and you know also a business that's had a bunch of criminal complaints, a bunch of like lost lawsuits for fraud. They've had criminal judgments against them for billions of dollars, and we're expecting these people to be honest with us, and you're you're trusting them. You're, you're trying, and especially if you know people that have been injured by other pharmaceutical medications. Like I know people personally that took stuff that wound up getting pulled from the market years later, and they got fucked up by it, like badly. Yeah. You know, uh, you, and it's just you can't you can't just mandate people take something that doesn't have a history of long term use. One of the things I found uh, happening to me though is I just wanted that shit to end. Yeah. And and I'd feel sometimes frustration with, with like like if it seemed like something this is early early on in the pandemic if it seemed like there was some ray of hope that something was going to fix the problem right and let you go back to all the normal shit right I would get a little frustrated early on with people who wouldn't get with the program 
not because just because I wanted I was like of come course. on just like let's of course do whatever we got to do to right. be able to go and do the work our work whatever like just let's just get this taken care of yeah and after a while you're like this isn't it's not going to be like that it's not going to get taken care of in right. the way it's not going to get taken care of in the way like a compliance it's not a compliance issue well, that's the problem it's, it's with a, the way it's, they it's, distribute it's a, information because they withheld that from us. Yeah. They pretended that it was going to stop transmission. Yeah. They didn't have any data on that. In fact, they didn't even test to see if it stopped transmission. They tested to see if it produce, produced antibodies. Yeah. I sat around thinking when they got that thing out, that was I it. thought that you take it, yeah. you don't get it, you don't yeah. give it to anyone. Yep. And dude, and I, I don't regret it, but I went down, I, was a, I got it early, and I went down thinking that Let's just go do this and get back to normal. I did too. <laughs> I, I, thought, I thought that I, was the end of it. Before I became like this person that resisted everything, I was lined up for it. I went to the UFC to get it because the UFC had allocated a bunch for all their employees. But it, it was on uh, a Saturday, the day the fights were, and they said, uh, I thought I could get it at the UFC because they have a doctor that works there. I'm like, can you give it to me like right before the fights? And uh, Dana was like, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll give you the vaccine right before the fights. I was like, perfect. So I go there, and then uh, I, I called Dana like as we got there. I said, hey, I'm here. Where can I go get the vaccine? And he, and he goes, let me get you in touch with the doctor. So he puts the doctor on. I talked to the doc, doctor. like, we actually have to administer it at the hospital. So can you go to the hospital on Monday? I was like, no, I have to go home. I go, but I'll be back in two weeks. In that time, they pulled the vaccine because people are getting blood clots. Oh, And I was yeah. like, holy shit. And then two people I know had strokes. In that time and I was like what the fuck and then I just started like thinking about all the things that I know about pharmaceutical companies and all their deception whether it's oxycontin isn't addictive or whether it's Vioxx isn't gonna cause you to have a stroke or all these different things that I knew I'm like hold the fuck on and then Trump got over it and I was like that fat fucking kick it <laughs> All of a sudden, I'm not scared. And then Chris Christie got it. I'm like, hold the fuck on, people. Like, are, are we sure this is what everybody is saying? It's like this doom and gloom is in the air, and everybody's so goddamn terrified. And by then, I knew quite a few people that had COVID and, and yeah. survived it, and even people that didn't even take vitamins and d weren't taking care of themselves. And I was on, like, fucking ultra health protocol when that was going down i'm like i am gonna fucking just keep my body humming and oiled at a hundred percent so if this shit comes down the pipe i'm ready yeah it's a wild thing to go through all of it i mean and all of us have experienced it this these last three years are very strange like one of the strangest upheavals of just the way discourse was handled, the way content was censored, the way you were allowed to talk about things, and, and even the way things that you know were described as misinformation and disinformation that turned mm -hmm. out to be absolute fact. And then you know that they knew it was absolute fact when they were labeling it disinformation. And how in cahoots the pharmaceutical companies were with the government and social media, it's like, wow. It's eye-opening. It's very, it's very eye-opening and, and pretty fucking wild. To, and it's an educational experience on the human condition and just about how people deal with adversity. What was the, I wonder if they're going to do, you know, remember the 9-11 report and the Kennedy report? What the hell are those things called? Congressional reports? Yeah. If they're going to do one on that? Depends on who's yeah. in office. Yeah. Depends on if the Republicans get in. Depends on who has power.
you know, because, you know, if the people that were in charge of the administration while the suppression was going down, which, you know, initially yeah, was Trump. Span, yeah, it spanned two administrations. Yeah, initially was Trump, but then, you know, the the vaccine rollout, you know, a lot of it happened during the Biden administration. And a lot of the censorship happened during the Biden administration. And also the collusion between the social media companies and the government happened during the Biden administration. So it's like... Who knows? Who knows? I mean, if if we continue to have Democrat presidents, we might never find out what the fuck is going on or what happened. We'll find a little bit about what's getting released through these Twitter documents mm -hmm. that Elon's releasing, which yeah. are pretty, pretty wild. Yeah. It's interesting who was scared of it and who wasn't, too. You know, that was that was interesting, too, to see some people just fall apart and freak out. Some of my friends fell apart and freaked out, you know. Oh, I saw, I mean, I saw a lot of it among, um, yeah, people that are near and dear to me. And I remember trying to convince my mom to get scared. <laughs> oh, really? Your mom was? <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, you know, she's, right, she's old, man. Yeah, my parents the same way. They they were the opposite, though. They were shut-ins. They just fucking isolated oh. from everybody for a whole year. It was really hard on them emotionally and psychologically. And then they slowly drifted back, you know. I mean, after they got vaccinated, they started coming around. But I didn't see my parents for a year. Yeah. Early on, I was kind of, yeah, hoping that my my mom got, uh, she was real upset about some of the things that were happening uh, politically in Michigan. And and I just wanted her to not lose sight of. Right. The safety it is a thing you can catch. It. Well, <laughs> and especially for people that are vulnerable. That's when the vaccine is very valuable. You know, for, for people that are older. You know, I'm a big advocate for it. Mm -hmm. And people that are of high risk, you know, it might make the difference between you getting really fucking sick or just getting a little sick. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, there's also a lot of shit they didn't tell people to do that they knew because it's not it, – there's no benefit to them financially. Like take vitamin D. That's one of, the, one of the early things they found out is that people that were in the ICU with COVID, a very large percent of them were deficient in vitamin C, which is crucial D. to the function D. D. Oh, you D. said C. Sorry. Did I say C? Sorry. Yeah. D, vitamin D. Because vitamin D is crucial to your immune system, and it's very difficult to get. Like, if you're not out in the sun every day, vitamin, you're not getting vitamin D unless you supplement. You're not really getting it that much from food. You really only get it from supplements or for, better from the sun. The sun's the best way to get it. I mean, that's the way. You, it's, a, it's really a hormone that your body produces because of sunlight. And it's crucial to immune function. They knew that early on. And they were never telling, there's no fucking news stories telling, please supplement with vitamin D. No one's telling you that. There was a, it was a lot of very frustrating stuff for me, too, because I have these long-form conversations with nutritionalists, nutritionists and epidemiologists and people who really understand about the immune system and weren't beholden to pharmaceutical companies, especially like independent people that have podcasts and scientists and, and people that weren't on board with the mainstream narrative. They're like, there's a lot of things you could be doing to protect yourself, and we should be telling these people to do this. And there's no discussion of this. It's just like this one very binary solution mm -hmm. take this medicine must get it get it get boosted keep going even after i got covid which i got over pretty quickly there was people telling me to get vaccinated now and i was like why would i do that after i got over the disease when natural immunity from recovering from the, the virus is seven times better protection than the vaccine they're like well it's even more protection and so you want me to join your team <laughs> that's what it is 
Yeah, it was, you know, it's funny. That that was the order in which I went. Got it, and then later got a vaccine. Well, a lot of people were telling you that's the best way to do mm-hmm. it because you get more protection, which is fine if that's what you want to do. That was Yeah, there was a travel restriction component of it, too, that I was concerned about. That is, That was a yeah. big issue. I just decided I'm not going to travel. I just was like, I'm going to hold on here because I just know the history of pharmaceutical companies and how all these things, everybody's like, oh, just take it, just take it, everything's fine. It does, it's not addictive, it's not going to kill you. And then years later, the truth comes out. It's like it's a long-standing story. It's a narrative that mm-hmm. plays out over and over and over again. But everybody was like, but not this time. You know, this time we're being honest. I got a buddy. His initials are, if he's listening, his, <laughs> his initials are SM. And I would fight with him early on. But like, why not just go? Because we, you know, uh, we're tied in on some stuff. And I'll fight with him. Be like, just go get the stupid things. You don't need to worry about it. Like, what's going on? Like, if we're going to go to whatever. just And he just would not. And it was so funny, and I remember even thinking, like, this guy is so rational about everything in his life, and he's so, like, calculated and doesn't screw up. And I'm like, why can he not? And what was his, uh, his thought? That he, he, didn't, he, he didn't see the need. He's, like, young, healthy, didn't see the need, and wasn't comfortable with someone telling him to go do it. And then it's so funny because I would bust his balls, and it gradually now I'm like, oh, that son of a bitch was like, you know. He was right. Yeah, I, I never gone. I never gone and said it to him though. Call him up. He'll know. All right, man. Well, we just did three hours plus. Yeah. So we should wrap this bitch up. Yeah. Are you hungry? Want to get something to eat before yeah, we I do. hit the road? Yeah. All right, let's I'm do it. All right. Bye, everybody.